get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It up to the blue line. Slap shot. Score. Right through the screen of Bennington. And the Lightning had made it 5-0. Flurry shot had eyes. Now the Blues will make the goaltending change to Joel Hofer. The puck comes to the near corner. One second to go. The Blues will clear it out. And that'll be the end of it. got a fine way to, I guess, uh, uh, like I said before, tilt the ice and stop the bleeding early. And just weren't able to do that tonight. And, yeah, we had some chances. But we only had 13 shots going into the uh, third period. So... A rough night last night for the St. Louis Blues down in Tampa Bay. No response whatsoever. They come out. They're flat from the very get-go. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, I was hopeful that maybe the Blues could start to build something. But I think we all knew deep down this game was coming. It was a matter of when, not if. And I didn't think it was going to be that bad. Like That was one of the worst Blues games of the season. And some of that's the opponent. But Tampa hasn't been a world beater this year. I thought Vasilevsky had a really nice night last night. But you can't lose that game 6-1. to That's just a terrible response by them. So much so that one of your stars got benched. We'll get into that here in just a little bit. But Alex, what did you make of their inability to respond? Once again, showing the, hey, a bunch of goals in a short period of time. No ability to come back. What did you make of last night's lack of response well, really from the Blues? It's pretty simple. The message got stale from the coach. <laughs> And That's you got to fire another coach and bring in a new coach because the message got stale and you got to get groups of players to listen. No, I this see this one to me felt more like what Doug Armstrong was talking about to where like there are games where you lose, but you still expect them to compete against the opponent and they shouldn't have gotten outplayed as much as they did against Tampa last night. Like Tampa got beat by Nashville. They've got beat by Arizona. They got beat by Calgary recently. Like Tampa's not a world beater, as you said. And this was a game that you went into it saying like, yeah, this is going to be a good matchup for the blues to see if they're really on that level of passion and compete that Doug Armstrong talked about. And they just didn't have it. And, you know, Shen was asked post game if it felt like they were kind of falling back into old habits. And he said, I don't want to get into the old habit conversation. I mean, it, it was like, He didn't show up from puck drop. Tampa got to the front of the net. I mean, four of their six goals that they scored last night were standing in front of Bennington in the crease and nobody was pushing them out of the front of the net. And then you've got that on top of the lack of offensive zone time. You had five shots in the first period. You got more shots towards the end, but the heat map on natural stat trick shows there was nothing in front of the crease. Like they were not taking Vasilevsky's eyes away. And then the part that really stuck in my crawl towards the end of the game is what Curbs talked a lot about on the broadcast and post game. It was 
the the fight from Tampa versus the fight from the Blues. And I'm not meaning dropping the gloves, but Tanner know went on the ice and just went right at Nick Letty. And, of course, Letty sidestepped. It took a stick up high, but you knew what his intentions were. And there was no response from the Blues at the end of that period. Third period, Tyler Tucker is caught by Eric Chernak on the side of the bench. No response from the Blues. There's There's... There's this lack of ability to pull them back into the fight this season that's happened a lot. And to the question that Matt DeFranks asked Braden Shen, I felt like this game started to showcase those old habits again from the Blues. Yeah, it felt a lot like old habits. It felt like a lot of business decisions on the ice last night where you don't want to go win a puck battle, don't want to go out and compete right off the get-go. And even though you're down 3-1 or 3 nothing, 4 nothing, 5 nothing still like to see some compete from the Blues team, and I never saw it at all last night. And it is falling back to old habits. It is business decisions of, oh, we're down 4 nothing. I don't want to get hurt. You know, it's whatever. You know, it's pond hockey game tonight. Who cares? And I think the part that's frustrating for me, and I don't know if you guys felt this way going into the game, and maybe I'm just more negative than anybody on the show, it felt like a predictable outcome oh, in that game. I said to you and yesterday, it, I it, expected the Blues to lose that one. I didn't think I, it was look like but, that, But though. that's what I mean, though, is... I, it almost felt predictable that they could lose a game like that nature to Tampa Bay because they're going down to beautiful Florida around the holidays. You know what? Two games in the Sunshine State. Eh, you know, maybe we'll show up. Maybe we won't. But, hey, we'll get to come back home here soon enough. Two games, you know, la-di-da. I, it felt too predictable to me. And I mean predictable by getting them getting shellacked last night. And I think that's where the concern is for me is, yeah, okay, you had your little pump-up moment with the new head coach coming in. I don't think last night's a one-off. I, I think that that was a predictable outcome, and that's the thing that Doug Armstrong's trying to find out is, did we wake him up with a new message, or is that what this team is? So this is where we've been comparing it to the other two teams that made the coaching firings prior to the Blues this year. Minnesota won its first four games after they fired Dean Evason. They have only lost one game by more than one goal since that firing. They have not allowed more than four goals in any game. Blues had all of that happen last night. They lost by five goals last night. They allowed six goals on the night to the Tampa Bay Lightning. So they have not responded the way that Minnesota did. We can just go ahead and write that one off. It is a different situation for Minnesota than it is for the Blues. Frankly, they had different expectations coming into the year as well. Minnesota was a legitimate top two to three team in the central division. The blues were battling for like maybe third, probably a wild card spot was the hope. So the closer comparison based on where they've been at post firing is Edmonton. Edmonton won two straight after the firing of Woodcroft. And Alex, you made this comparison yesterday because of the way that the schedules lined up. Then they had the same Florida swing that the blues are in right now, where they go to Tampa Bay, they go down to Miami to take on Florida. They lost the game in Tampa Bay. Edmonton did 6-4. to four. Now, it was a closer game than what the Blues just played, but they allowed six goals. You didn't play very well in that one. Then they lose at Florida 5-3. to three. They lose their next game, so three straight losses did Edmonton. 6-3. to three. They've won eight straight, though, since then. So they had a really weird stretch down in Florida. They go up to Carolina, lose that one as well, and then they win eight straight. This is why I don't want to react too much to any one individual game. We didn't overreact to the first two where they played well under the new head coach. I don't want to overreact in a negative way to what we saw last night. Now becomes the question. It's easy to get up and play for the new coach as you're everything kind of riding high, right? You got the, the fresh voice in there. Everybody's happy. Okay, things maybe are turning in the right direction. It's hard now. This is where things get difficult. You can't point at the coach for your playing time. You can't point at, oh, things went stale. No, none of that is possible anymore. 
Now it is about you guys coming together in that locker room and actually fixing the crap that has gone wrong. Because all of the stuff that happened last night, Alex, to your point, we've seen it a million times this year. We've seen it a million times over the past two years. So now it's about getting it corrected. They've got a bunch of dudes from the Blues front office, the analysts, everybody that are down there right now in Tampa Bay. They were all watching from the press box last night. Now is the time to have the hard conversations. Now is the time to look each other in the eye and say, are we actually going to get this thing turned around? Or is it going to be a bunch of us that are getting traded at the deadline and a bunch of us that might not end up having NHL spots over the next few weeks? That's what today is about for the Blues. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to overreact because it is only one game and they could go out there and play well against Florida. But I, I think it's spot on reacting to say that the Blues still are a team that decides when they want to play. And that's the biggest problem right now. And look, you fired a coach so that you could hone in and take that equation out of it so you could know if it's the players. I mean, look, yes, it's one game. And yes, you just came back against the Dallas Stars, but it's the same stuff we've seen throughout the middle of this season before Baruby was fired. It's the same stuff we saw last season. It's what Braden Shen said following the Chicago Blackhawks game. And last night I thought was a perfect example of it. There are certain guys on the team that decide when they want to play and that impacts everybody else. And the early start where Tampa not only scored in the first three minutes of the first period, but the second period also you had the lack of discipline that took place to the penalties, putting that team on the power play three separate times. I, Again, one game, absolutely, but it's a trend that has been here for two years that is a massive issue if you're Doug Armstrong and his staff right now of we've got a group of players that decide when they want to play, not every single night, and you you can't do much with that moving forward. And, and that's why I don't think it's overreacting to react to last night's game the way that I did because they've done it for two years. They don't have enough guys that want to go out there and win on a consistent basis, night in, night out. They got a bunch of guys that are good at hockey, that play the sport, and I don't think care much about the winning aspect of it. I'm willing to say that because it's ridiculous what happened last night. I understand that the new voice came in and, look, it is easy to win two games. Man, you can't have what happened last night happen consistently for two years where you decide when you want to play. That's just not good enough, and that's what Doug Armstrong was talking about at his press conference when they fired Greg Berube. Wasn't a Berube issue. I'm not even sure. I think part of it is a roster construction issue. It's about the willingness on the ice issue for the St. Louis Blues. I mean, it's hard to disagree with that at this point. And one of the things that we saw last night was what Bannister has been saying all along since being hired. Hey, we're going to hold people accountable. And last night, that player was Pavel Buchnevich. He ends up getting three hooking penalties over the course of that game. And in the final 12 and a half minutes of the game, he did not see the ice. They were double shifting guys to be able to cover for his lack of ice time down the stretch. Here was Drew Bannister after the game when asked about why he took Pavel Buchnevich out of the game. Yeah, I mean, he took three penalties. Like, Bucci's, Bucci's a, a good player for us, and uh, he's no good to me in the penalty box. Like, he, he's he's got to be out on the ice. He's got to be effective that way. And, you know, I think for him, it's, it's not only a message to him, but it's a message to the whole team. Like... You know, uh, we need guys to play on the ice. They're, they're no good to us in the penalty box. And, um, you know, so so moving forward, that's that's the standard. Like, get, 
guys want to guys want to play. They have to earn their ice time. So I know Drew Bannister was talking solely about Pavel Buchnevich there and saying that you know you can't play on this, you can't play in the game if you're in the penalty box. But I, I maybe it's me reading too much into it. I also think he was making the statement to everybody because Absolutely. part of the reason Pavel Buchnevich was in the penalty box was because he wasn't skating. That's those stick infractions that Craig Berube has talked about. When you're tripping, when you're hooking, you're not keeping up with the guy in front of you, and now you're in the penalty box. So yeah, he used the words, you know, if you're in the box, you can't play. So we need guys to play. He was also speaking to everybody else saying like, look, this is the standard that's going to be set, at least for me right here. And frankly, I love it. We talked to Boudreaux last week and Boudreaux, we asked him, you know, like, how do you avoid that honeymoon phase when you're a new head coach in the middle of the season? He says, I coach my own way. Bannister's coming up here and he's coaching his own way. I got the wild tweet last night from somebody that said, ah, oh, Bannister's just another yes man like John Mozeliak and Ali Marmol are. That is so far from the truth because of what he did last night. Like every single person on that and to team. Be fair, Ollie Marmol did the exact same thing with Tyler O'Neill early in the season, but neither here nor there. Every single <laughs> person. Didn't like it, yeah. Every single person on that bench looked down and saw Pavel Buchnevich not only sitting at five on five when he exited the box, but not going out there on the number one power play unit. Hugh McGing. Hugh McGing replaced got him it. on the second power play unit, by the way. So oh, they moved up Sonny to the first unit, and then Hugh McGing got his opportunity on the second unit. They, the, Drew Bannister basically said, if you're not going to put the compete into games for me, then you'll sit and watch the team compete without you. And again, sure, it's your best player. And if they were only down by a goal, I highly doubt that was going to happen. He did that because the team was down by six goals. Yeah. But good on him to sit there and put one of your best players on the bench and saying, you're not going back out there. And I'm glad that Bannister did it. I hope it's a, a eye-opening experience for all those other players. But again, I don't know if it is. I think guys, guys feel like that this is how it's going to be right now with us, and you got to find your way through it. But you'll the, the proof will be in the pudding on Thursday night when you take on the Florida Panthers. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to respond to this. Like, I don't know if they liked it. I don't know if they hated it. I don't think it, I don't know if it was somewhere in between. I, I, I don't know. It was deserved, though. Pavel Buchnevich wasn't just bad when he was in the box. He wasn't good on the ice last night. Yeah. He played a bad game. He was the fighting the wasn't puck. Good. He didn't seem to be totally engaged. He lost puck battles like... I am the biggest Booch fan that you guys will find in St. Louis. I think he is the best penalty killer in the history of this organization. He was bad last night. Had a really bad game, start to finish. And that includes the penalties, but it also includes just everything else that he was doing out there. Making too many passes. Like, at some point, you got to shoot it, Bucci. And he knows that. He's going to learn from what happened last night. I expect him to bounce back in the next game. But I will be interested to see what it looks like. I am curious to see how does the team respond to something like that, where one of your best players gets called out publicly and privately, and his ice time is taken away from him. I don't know, man. That's going to be something that is worth monitoring over the course of the next few games. Bannister's going to do the things his way, because what the hell does he have to lose? He's got nothing to lose. Yeah, like, if okay, cool, you're going to fire me? I'll just go back to the job that I had. You're the one that asked me to do this and, you're and not try to firing save your me. ass. I'm going to be here for the rest of the season, because you're not going to fire me and bring in another coach. It, I mean, maybe they bring in a new coach, but it just means that he gets his old job back. Like, nothing changes for Drew Bannister if he's quote-unquote fired. It means he reverts back to being the AHL coach, which is a pretty darn good gig, and now he's had the opportunity to coach in the NHL as well. So he's got nothing to lose. He's going to go about the, this thing his way. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, he'll go back to the AHL. 
Last night was the first time that we have seen this team fail in a spectacular way under Bannister in the three games as the head coach. Now we get to see how they respond. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. Blue's back in action tomorrow night down in Florida. We'll get to see Matthew Kachuk, who could have been a Blue, uh, here on 101 Great ESPN. Time. Your pregame coverage Always will begin tomorrow good. at 5 o'clock. We'll puck drop for you tomorrow at 6. Chris Kerber will be on that call. He will also join us coming up today at 1.30. But coming up next, let's get into the Cardinals. Because yesterday, there was a quote from John Mosaylock that me and T-Bone read in very different ways. We'll put that quote through the Mo translation machine. And a former Cardinal said that he thinks the Cardinals might be done for the offseason. We'll explain why that cannot be the case next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll get into some NFL quick hitters coming up in about 10 minutes or so. But right now, we got to put something through the Mo quote machine, the translation machine, so to speak. He was on the Cardinals radio network over the weekend talking about where the Cardinals are at in their offseason, what happens next, where they're at, and uh, how it's going to play into their future plans. He said the following, quote, When you think about adding a rotation arm versus a bullpen arm, All we want to do is shorten the game. The deeper you go with your starters, the better our bullpen will be regardless of who's in the bullpen. That has been the key to the offseason for us, and it will continue to be the case for the remaining two months before we get to Jupiter, end quote. Again, that came from John Mosellock on the Cardinals radio network on Sunday. T-Bone, you and I had very different takeaways from the exact same quote. So when you put that quote through your Mo translation machine, what did you hear from John Mosellock? I heard we're going to get a bullpen arm. The Cardinals are going to add a bullpen arm, and they're going to try and shorten games with the rotation that they have, and they hope that their innings eaters, Michaelis, hope Sonny Gray would fall into that category, Gibson and Lynn can go six, and then boom, you turn it over to the one high leverage arm that you've signed, Gallegos, Helsley, and that's going to be the formula for the season for the Cardinals. Maybe you add a second arm in, too, for when one of those guys is going to be down for a day. You can still shorten games, go six, seven innings with your starters, and boom, you only need high leverage arms at the back end of the bullpen, and the depth not necessarily... I mean, you really don't want to rely on that depth too much, but that's the way I read it was, hey, we're going to get a bullpen arm because our goal is basically starter goes six, and then we can basically lay it out. This guy goes the seventh, this guy goes the eighth, and then Helsley's got the ninth inning, and boom, we are done, and we are going to hopefully be able to do that for 162 games. I read it that he's saying the offseason's over. And maybe this is, I'm not good at the Mo translator like you guys are, but to me, I'm reading this as the deeper you go with your starters, the better our bullpen will be. Well, if you look at their rotation of what they've already added, you've got Lynn, Gibson, Michaelis, Gray. That's plenty of depth in your rotation. And then Mats, Thompson, whomever else you want to go with in that spot. So it doesn't seem like they're adding a rotation arm. And it seems like him saying that their bullpen will be better when their starters go deeper means that they're viewing their bullpen already in a really good spot. They've got a ton of arms that they can use, and we don't have to use all of them because our rotation is going to put our bullpen in a good spot. I viewed it as him saying we're not out on adding another starter. Oh. So we all had very different takeaways from this. I think they're going to add a bullpen arm. Like they had two relievers, or excuse me, 
They had two pitchers in town last week. We don't know specifically if it was relievers. That would be my assumption. But Yuki Matsui was at least one of them who is a reliever. So you don't bring a guy to town if you have zero interest in adding to your bullpen. I fully anticipate they're going to add at least one more arm to that group. I think one of the former Astros probably makes the most sense there. But there's 150 different bullpen arms. They're going to sign one of them, I think. So then it becomes a question of, like, what else are you going to do this offseason? And I don't know for sure that they're going to trade for a starter. But when I read this, what it tells me is, hey, if we're going to trade for a starter, it was never going to be a guy like, for example, Tyler Glass now. They were never going to be in on him. They're absolutely not in on a guy like Blake Snell. They don't want another five and dive, dive pitcher. If you're going to go that route, obviously it's different levels of quality in those five innings. But we'll just have Steven Matz be our fifth starter and he'll give us the five innings that we're looking for there. But if they do go out and trade for somebody, it's going to be somebody like Shane Bieber or Framber Valdez or your guy, Logan Gilbert. It's certainly not going to be Edward Cabrera who might give you three or might give you seven, depending on if he's on that night. It's going to be somebody that gets deep into baseball games because that is what they are focusing on. The lesson that they learned right or wrong from 2023 was their starters didn't get deep enough and it put too much of a burden on, onto their bullpen. So when I read this quote for me, and I can only speak for myself, my my thought was, man, I don't know that they're for sure going to add another starter, but I don't think he's ruling out the possibility at all based on hearing this from him. Because right now, their fifth starter, they can expect five innings out of him regularly, and that's Steven Matz. And I hope that's the way it reads because I still believe, and we've talked a lot about this, that they need another starting pitcher. I just I view this as Mo feels like that they've already had a great offseason in adding Lynn and Gibson when they did so early and then they got the top dog in Sonny Gray. So they felt like all of their innings are taken care of in that fifth spot, although it's Steven Matz, but you've got two guys that you feel like you can use in that spot, which should cover you for the full season. So if I had to lean one direction, I would lean more towards the bullpen arm because to me, at least hearing Mo talk, it seems like he's pretty pleased with what they've accomplished with their rotation. And to be clear, I I also think that they will a bullpen arm like we're all on the same page there it's just a question of okay do they add the bullpen arm and more or do they just add the bullpen arm i'd be shocked if they're completely done right now but there's at least one former cardinal who thinks that they very well might be and that cardinal is aj brzezinski well they got lynn they got sunny gray they got kyle gibson what else are they gonna do they got a first baseman they got a second baseman they got a shortstop they got a third baseman they got a catcher their outfield stack they traded tyler o'neill i mean if i'm john mosaic i'm sitting back there going man you know, unless something crazy happens in the reliever market, I'm like, oh, man, I don't know that we're going to have to make any more moves because the NL Central isn't making any moves. The Brewers probably got worse this offseason, losing Woodruff. The Cubs haven't done <laughs> I mean, the Pirates, okay, they, they signed some dudes. But you're like, if I'm John Mozeliak, I'm like, if we can just get Arenado, Goldschmidt, and the rest of these dudes to play up to their potential, we're good. Let's set the NL Central point aside for a minute. We'll get into that coming up at 115. But, guys, I – if they are done with the offseason, it's been a failure. And I say that while acknowledging I really like Sonny Gray. I told you guys all, all season he would have been one of my top targets for the Cardinals. I love that they signed him. I love the contracts that they signed him to. I think it's going to go down as one of the better deals of this offseason. I'd be surprised if it ages, ages poorly for the Cardinals. That being said, you have not done enough to solidify this roster. I do think you need at least another bullpen arm. Probably two of those guys. And if you can be 
opportunistic by going to the trade market and finding another starter that upgrades your rotation. Do not rule that out either. But uh, I I don't think they should be looking at it right now as if they are done for the offseason at all. I totally disagree with AJ Brzezinski in that realm. Oh, yeah, I disagree wholeheartedly. I think they need to add both a starter and a bull. But I do think that Mo's looking at it that way. You don't think they're going to add another bullpen? I don't. Arm. I think they're probably going to. Why'd they bring in Yuki Matsui? I think they want to bring in a bullpen arm for a one year deal, and I don't think you're going to get a bullpen arm that to the status of a Matsui. But you think they're going to sign somebody? Probably, but it's not okay. going to be anything that gets you excited. It's not going to be something that you say, "Oh, their bullpen got better." It's going to be somebody that you were able to bring in on a one year deal and say, "If yeah, they he sign could give us Maton, something. you don't think that that is? I don't know if they get Maton to be honest with you. Okay. I don't so know. you're talking about like a guy that you've never heard, like somebody similar Some, to um, Riley O'Brien, uh, Nick Robertson, like yeah. that, maybe in the big leagues, maybe doesn't make your opening their roster kind of thing. Something okay. like that. If they do that, it's a failure. Yeah, and I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to bring in a Maton or someone of that ilk. I, I do agree, though, it's probably going to be a signing that fans will look at and go, did that really help us out? Did that help our bullpen at all? And the answer is probably going to be yes. But like, I was about to say, there, if they sign like a Maton level, like that second tier reliever, though, they, the answer is a definitive yes. Yeah, it will absolutely and, help you. And the reason I don't think it's going to draw a lot of interest in terms of from the fan base is because like, what relievers really ever do when they you sign yeah, them? Very like few. only the guys that are in the top top end of the market, like the Hicks, the Josh Hader, those guys. The sign they're going to bring in is going to be like, I don't even know if the terms have been released on the Matsui deal, but it's going to be probably in his ilk, going to be a one, two-year deal, five to seven million dollars. They're going to bring in someone like a Maton that can really, he would definitely help this bullpen. But if they were done today, and again, I don't think they are because I think they're at least bringing in one, maybe two bullpen arms. I'm skeptical of the starter, though I still think they need one. If they were done today, it's a D for the offseason because we we still, and I'm still standing by this, I think we all in this room agree. The goal of the offseason was to add two starters to slide ahead of my, my ahead of Miles Michaelis. They've gotten one so far, and go out and get two high leverage bullpen arms. They've gotten none so far. So if the offseason was done, it's a D. Yeah, and I, I think people are viewing it as they're done because there's been very little movement since they made the signings of the three starters. Guys, that's been the case for every team in Major League Baseball. This offseason just stinks right now for the sport. Like n- nothing is getting done. None of these top-end starters are signing anywhere. Jordan Montgomery's still out there. Blake Snell's still out there. There's, like, no rumors on either of those two guys. The Shohei Otani sweepstakes and now the Yamamoto sweepstakes have completely gummed up the market to a degree where nothing is happening. Um, the, the trade market isn't even active right now. The Tyler Glasnow deal got done, but other than that, nothing. Nothing is out there. So I wouldn't worry too much just yet about what the Cardinals will or will not do. Yuki Matsui sign, other than that, man, the, the bullpen market has not gotten off uh, in terms of the top-level guys at all. So I still think they're going to be active in that market, and I, I still am allowing myself to believe that they will at least be a part of the conversations on some of these trade targets for the starters as well. For T-Bone and Alex on BK, coming up next, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters, including... When you look right now at these two coaches, who do you think is more likely to be with a new team in 2024? Mike Frabel or Mike Tomlin? We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back. 
back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Dive into some NFL quick hitters alongside Alex and T-Bone. I am BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Let's start out with this, guys. I do think there's going to be some interesting movement in the coaching landscape after this season. It seems all but done that Bill Belichick is probably going to be coaching somewhere other than New England in 2024. He might not be the only one. There's some buzz that seems to be growing about, hey, is Mike Tomlin going to be in Pittsburgh next year? Is his time going to be up as a Pittsburgh Steelers head coach? I would bet against it because Pittsburgh doesn't typically make changes with their head coach. In my entire life, they've had two guys that have been the head coach there. It's been Tomlin and Bill Cowher. That's it. If you were asked, though, more likely to coach somewhere other than their current team in 2024, would it be Mike Tomlin or Mike Vrabel, Alex? I think if if I were to pick the one that's going to be coaching elsewhere, it would be Mike Vrabel. Because if you're the Steelers, I don't think you could let Mike Tomlin walk. And I know there was a a ton of pushback of, you know, Mike Tomlin, even though it's been a bad season, still should go so they could bring in a new voice. The success that they have had, albeit like you haven't gone anywhere with it, like you're either a 500 team or you're a little bit better, but you're nowhere near. I also think that's a roster where you don't have a good enough quarterback to get you anywhere. And I know Pickett's been out, but Mike Vrabel, although as an incredible coach, it seems like he has hit his plateau with that Titans team and their roster is about to take a massive turn and if I'm Mike Vrabel I don't know if I want to be there and if I'm the Titans I probably need a new voice I actually would lean towards Mike Tomlin because I I think with him it just feels like it's grown stale the last three years and part of that is what you said you know the quarterback situation but man he's stuck with his offensive coordinator way too long than he should have Canada was a terrible offensive coordinator it just feels stale. They feel like blah. That like it feels like a change needs to happen for honestly just change sake. For Mike Vrabel, I think he's actually safe in Tennessee. And whether you I don't think, think he's that's right fired, or wrong, but I'm saying, do you think that he wants I, no, out? No, I think he's. I think he's going to be there. I, I think he's willing to take on the challenge in Tennessee. Hmm. And I, I mean, he's got great job security there. They fired the GM over him. Why? Because they trusted Mike Vrabel more than they trusted the general manager. So I think he's got great job security. And if I'm him, I don't want to leave that for something else. And I would try and build around Will Levis. I, if I'm Mike Tomlin, I want out out of the Pittsburgh situation. I could see both. Um, I think the more likely one, though, I, I agree with Alex. I think it's Mike Vrabel. I could see him saying, you know what? I'll go back to New England. Check that out. Got a good ownership situation there. I, I don't know <laughs> the what the ownership situation me. looks like in Tennessee right now. I know they're getting a new uh, stadium, but there's been some frustrations there. Uh, I could see him saying, let's go to New England. Let's get the whoever the top pick is in terms of their quarterback and see how that works. I'll, I'll go replace my former coach in Bill Belichick. So I, I could see that one happening. I'm just skeptical that Pittsburgh is going to make a change. I understand that they could trade him and maybe that's the way you do it. You don't have to fire Mike Tomlin. He's got one more year under his contract. You could do what uh, the Raiders did with John Gruden 20 years ago when they traded him for second round pick, first round pick, whatever it was. The same thing happened um, with Sean Payton as well going to Denver. I think they got two second round picks for him. You could get something of substance. Like if I'm another team, the Chargers, for example, 
I would be very interested in Mike Tomlin coming over and adding a little bit of discipline to my football team. He's a really good head coach. Maybe things have gotten a little stale there, but I would bet on uh, Vrabel over Tomlin. The next thing up that I wanted to get to with you guys as we go through some NFL quick hitters, there's a lot of speculation on what the future is going to hold for Kyler Murray and whether or not he's going to be the long-term answer in Arizona. I think he's played pretty well since coming off of IR this year. I think he's been better this season than he was last year. I know the numbers don't necessarily support that, but he's got a terrible supporting cast. Do you guys think he's shown you enough that you can continue to build around him, or do you make the trade this offseason and try to get somebody in this year's NFL draft? I think I try and make a trade. As much as I do agree he's played better since his return, and I just think that team is just in shambles, but, I I mean, I also see other quarterbacks that are having success this season with a worse supporting cast. So I, I I think if I'm Arizona and I know I've got my right head coach, I'm going to let Gannon decide who he wants to move forward with. And if I'm him, I'd like to make a trade and go get a rookie quarterback so I can start fresh with the new quarterback, new system, and don't have any other drama surrounding it. I think I would stick with Kyler. Um, but I think you're probably right. I think they'll probably go with somebody else, but I, I would probably stick with Kyler because the grass isn't always greener on the other side. We see we see that all the time with this kind of move where you move on from a okay quarterback that's kind of in the middle, and then you think you draft the franchise guy and he ends up being a bust. I I think I would stick with Kyler, and I think now that Gannon's there, it almost – and look, they don't pop up a lot on red zone for reasons um, because they're not good, but I – I feel like there's more accountability on Kyler now than there was under Kingsbury, where it almost felt like Kyler Murray's running the show, and it was, oh, I can go to the sideline, I can kind of pout about the turnover, and I'm going to yell at Cliff, I'm not really too upset about it, I know I'm here longer than Cliff. I, I think now there is more of Gannon is holding him accountable for his actions, and I feel like Gannon's coaching him up a little bit. I've been impressed by the work that he's done. I think I would probably stick with Kyler. It'd be a $46 million cap hit next year to trade him. I think I would stick with him as well. The hard part is right now they're picking third in next year's draft. It's one is Chicago, two is New England, three is Arizona. And if you end up in that spot and there's a quarterback there that you really like and you can restart the cycle of a very cheap quarterback that allows you to add around the quarterback next year, I understand how you could convince yourself. But really, I think they need to get that number two spot. You probably want one of Caleb Williams or more likely Drake May. Drake May is a different personality than what you have right now with Kyler. I don't know that you're getting rid of Kyler to add Caleb Williams. That feels like you're just getting the same thing in a different package. Yeah. Right. So I, I probably wouldn't make that move. But if you think that Drake May is going to be there, I, I guess I suppose that I get it. And I think May's going to be there because I don't think Chicago is going to take a quarterback. Oh, I think, really? I think Chicago is going to select something or trade down and get more assets. And maybe I think the they team are. that trades they, up. They're the one that I think makes the move because there's no cap hit. Like if you yeah. trade Justin Fields, you're getting something for Fields, probably a second round pick, something like that. And you can take the quarterback that you want and you restart the financial clock yeah. on your quarterback. I feel like Fields has looked really good, though, over these last few weeks. And I don't know. It'll be interesting to find out. Like, you know, obviously, although I don't know, obviously, that they're going to take a quarterback in New England. If Belichick's not there, I would almost guarantee they will. But I wonder if May's going to be sitting there for Arizona at three, which makes it interesting. I think Fields has looked better. But here's his passing numbers in recent weeks. 99, 210, 215. He's thrown an interception in each of those games. He has no more than one touchdown in each of those games. So while he's been better, let's still keep it in what 
the actual numbers are. I think the bigger debate for the Bears is what the future holds for Eberflus because I think they're ready to move on from Fields. I think they'll make that move. I would say if you're going to make that move, you make both. You fire Eberflus and you go get an offensive-minded coach for Caleb Williams when he's brought in. But I don't know. I saw reports that they haven't made a decision on Eberflus yet because ever since he took over the defense, the defense has been pretty good for the Chicago Bears, and they are more competitive. I need to correct myself. I was looking at the beginning of the year, not the last three weeks. So Justin Fields has been better. All right, next thing up here. How many quarterbacks should go? I know, bad job by me. That's a really bad job by me reading the game log. Uh, I have him on my fantasy team. I don't know how I forgot that he was. He was really not great this week, but past couple of weeks were better to Alex's point. Uh, next thing up here, guys, how many quarterbacks do you think should or will go in round one? Because today on ESPN.com, they put out their first primer of the M- NFL draft and which guys will go in the first round. They seem to think pretty firmly that there's at least going to be three guys drafted up there and, and probably four. I think they really cut it off at like a Michael Panic's probably more of a second or a third round pick for them, but they like Caleb Williams to go in the top five, as we've all expected. Drake made the in North Carolina quarterback expected to go top five as well. They believe Jaden Daniels will also go in the first round. Who else do you guys think, if anybody, should be a, a first round NFL quarterback? This I, year? I think PJ McCarthy is another one. I think Penix goes in the first round. And I originally thought Bo Nix would, but I don't know if Bo Nix is going to be there. Um, for a first round selection, I think he's probably going to be more second. I think a team late in that first round takes Penix, though. I, I think we see three go in the first round. I, I don't know about Penix. He's interesting. I'm trying to think who his best comp is. Who's just kind of a gunslinging quarterback there that throws the ball real well? Because like I love his his ability to throw the football. Russ I, probably. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. But I, I just don't know if he's going to get a first-round grade. I don't think McCarthy's going first round. I, I've i not been all that impressed with J.J. McCarthy. I mean, Somebody he doesn't have to throw the football. compared him to uh, uh, Kirk Cousins in the ESPN write-up. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. Um, I can see – I definitely think Williams may, and I think Daniels will be a guy that maybe is in, like, the back end of that Why top ten. Why is he a top-five pick? What does he need to do that you haven't seen from him in, in the college ranks? I think if he, if I'm a team in the top five or at least the top ten, I'm selecting Jaden Daniels if I need yeah. a quarterback. I, I don't know like why. If you're the Giants, why not take him? Because you've got Tommy Daniel DeVito. Jones and Daniel Jones. Uh, hey, yeah, hey, uh, if you're the Jets, why not take him? Got Aaron Rodgers. And Zach Wilson. If you're Tennessee, why if not take him? If you're the Atlanta oh, I, Falcons, I'm why Tennessee. not take him? Like, If I'm Tennessee, I'm taking Jaden Daniels in a heartbeat. The problem is, is Jaden Daniels just Malik Willis? What? I mean, I, he's a mobile quarterback. That's what you were hoping Malik Willis was, and he wasn't any good. Yeah, but he can throw. Malik Willis couldn't throw. Jaden Daniels this year was one of the best throwing quarterbacks I, in, in all of college. He football. reminds me a little bit of kind of Kyler, where he can run, throw the football pretty well. That's yeah. who I would comp him to. I, and I he's think, 6'4". Yeah. He's bigger than people yeah. expect him to be. I don't know why he's not getting top five vibes. Because I think you're right. I think, I think those teams that you talk about, I think they should look at it. Maybe not Tennessee because I've been kind of impressed with Will Levis. But I could hear the argument for Atlanta's it. 10th. He should not go past Atlanta. No, no. If Atlanta doesn't select Jaden Daniels, if he's still there on the board, and this is all subject to change, right, over the next three and a half months. But if he's there when Atlanta selects and they're 10th, they got to take him. Yeah. He's a good quarterback. They clearly need a quarterback, and he does everything. He's a really good runner, and he's an excellent passer. I think he gets underrated for how good he I, was as a passer this year. He was the best deep ball thrower in all of college football. You know where that might work? 
the team that has Drake London and Kyle Pitts on it. Just go let those guys throw it over the top all day long. I think he'll be in the back end of the top 10 and maybe fall out of it. But outside of that, like, I think last year there was a lot of buzz of a lot of guys, but like I think Will Levis was a guy that was buzzed, yeah. rumored to be in a first I round pick. I think he's pick. Bo Nix. I think Bo Nix will be in that range. I think Nix. I think McCarthy. I think Penix. I think all those guys fall outside the the first round. I wouldn't be shocked if all the mock drafts going into the draft say, "Look, seven quarterbacks in the first round," and then it doesn't really happen. You get three in like the top fifteen, and then they're done. I do think it's a more interesting quarterback class than what we saw last year. I'm trying to remember who was in last year. I know Levis was. Who else got drafted kind of late? What was last year? Tommy DeVito got overlooked, clearly. He went undrafted. Uh, last year, we had Young and Ander, or Young and Stroud at the top, Anthony uh, yeah. Richardson at the top as well. Um, and then after that, there was that big drop-off. Yeah. And Levis was the only Levis. other guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. I think it is a more inter- interesting class. I think that middle is more interesting. I think the top yeah. is pretty similar. Like, Young and Stroud is going to be this year what you see with, um, with Williams, Williams and, and Drake May. And then the the Anthony Richardson comparison, I mean, they're different players because Richardson was huge. He's like yeah. this Cam Newton type of figure. Uh, the, the comparison for that, and I think it'll be similar in terms of how high he rises in the draft, it's going to be Jaden Daniels. But Jaden Daniels has all of the production, whereas yeah. it was all about projection for yeah. Anthony Richardson. And I think Daniels is a better all-around passer Agreed. because I think Richardson was more the deep ball guy than what Daniels is. Daniels can throw the deep ball, but he's good at also just kind of the intermediate routes as well. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, yesterday I was listening to the post-game show with Alex Ferrario, and Joey Vitale said something interesting about the Blues making changes to the roster if things don't get turned around. What changes can this roster actually make, though? We'll talk about that coming up in about 10 minutes or so. Questions and answers is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. You guys send your questions and we'll answer them here on BK and Ferrario. Let's start with this from the three one four guys. Is there any benefit to Mizzou beating Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl? If they win against Ohio State, people will say they only won because Ohio State didn't have their starting quarterback or some of the other guys that ended up opting out. But if they lose, Mizzou lost to the team that had all of the opt outs. What's the upside here? It's a bowl game, man. This is how it works. Um, people are going to make sweeping generalizations, but let's be honest, two days later, they're not going to remember because the college football playoff will be played a week later. They'll move on to whoever the next team is that lays an egg in the bowl game the next day. So, and it's over the holidays. So like, there's nothing going on. Nobody else is going to be talking about it. This is why I've said it's overstated how important it is, which bowl game Mizzou got. I enjoy seeing Mizzou go up against better opponents, so I wanted them to play against Ohio State or Penn State or Washington, etc., who ended up whoever ended up getting uh, missing out on the college football playoff. But there's not a ton of upside, and there's basically no downside in a game like this. Go out there, have fun. Everybody goes home. That's pretty much it. Don't lose. Also, because you don't want to lose to a team that didn't have their quarterback and two best receivers. No, it don't matter. No, either way. <laughs> I don't care. Shouldn't matter. It's a scrimmage. It's a practice game for everybody involved. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service sex time. Guys, do you think that the Eagles miss their former defensive coordinator, Jonathan Gannon, or offensive coordinator, Shane Steichen, more this year? For me, it's Steichen. I think they really miss him in-game. I think their in-game play calling has been a problem, and I think you've seen with Buffalo, 
I don't think they've changed a whole lot with their scheme. I think their new offensive coordinator, Joe Brady, has a better feel for the game than what they had with Ken Dorsey calling the plays. And I think that is something like there's game planning and then there's play calling. And they're two different pieces to the same job as offensive coordinator. And I think what you're seeing this year is that Shane Steichen is missed in terms of the game calling. Uh, so I, I would say Steichen is the one they miss more. Yeah, I think you missed both desperately. I would actually lean more towards the defense just recently. I mean, obviously you, you held Seattle to 20 points, but prior to that, 33 for the Cowboys, 42 for the Niners, 34 for the Bills. Uh, those are teams you're going to have to go up against in the playoffs, and you've been giving up a lot of points to those teams. Like defense against Philadelphia used to be it's going to be a tough game. This season it feels like every time you go into it, if fantasy purpose-wise, if you've got somebody going up against Philadelphia, they're in for a good game. Yeah, I I would lean a little bit more towards Steigen because I think on the defensive side of the ball, they just don't feel as talented as they were a year ago. Offensively, they've got all the same pieces back. Hurts there, Kelsey at center, uh, Smith and Brown at wide out. Goddard, I know he's injured, but Mm -hmm. Goddard at the tight end spot at the beginning of the year. It's just felt clunky all year long. At least I can say the defense just never turned it around, and I, I just don't know if they're talented and they feel old on the defensive side of the ball too uh 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers uh guys explain the big mizzou news in mlb or nhl terms hmm okay what news are we referring to mizzou got another commitment today from a defensive end out of georgia oh they didn't get a commit from Ryan Wingo. Yeah, Ryan Wingo's going to Texas, as everybody expected. Uh, Jeremiah McClellan, though, congratulations to the CBC product. He's decided to flip his commitment from Ohio State to Oregon. I think he's going to be great there. I I think he was the best wide receiver in the city this year. I, I think he's one of the best wide receivers in the country. He's such a talented kid. Um, the big Mizzou news. They got a defensive end out of, or, or out of Georgia. The comparison would be like if the Cardinals suddenly traded for a guy that was a former top 100 prospect that had shown promise with another team and it was at an immediate position of need. So like if the Cardinals had traded for Ryan Pepio from the Dodgers, that's probably the comparison of what Mizzou just got. You've seen signs of it at Georgia. He's an athletic freak. Nobody really knows if he's going to be a great college player, but the hope is that he will be. So that that would be the comparison for for baseball terms. All right, three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line uh, for questions and answers. We're getting a lot here, Alex, on Pavel Buchnevich and what the Blues' next moves will be. I want to get into that on the other side. Joey Vitale said something interesting yesterday in post game. He talked about how the Blues players need to realize that this opportunity is not guaranteed to them, and if they don't. There could be roster moves that are made, but can there be? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex and T-Bone on BK. Tanner's bringing too much energy for the rest of us here on this show. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need you calling anybody out. People shut down when you get called out for stuff, man. Don't need that from you. Trust me, I saw the Blues do it last night. Coming up in just a little bit, we'll get to more likely to happen. If you give us two scenarios, we'll tell you which one is more likely here in just a little bit. But Alex, last night I was listening to your post-game show. You do a great job, as always, on the Blues pre-post and intermission. You'll hear them again tomorrow night. Blues versus the Panthers pre-game for that one starting at 5 o'clock. And Joey, I thought, said something really interesting 
about how the Blues players need to realize that this is not a guaranteed opportunity for them. And if they don't start pulling their heads out of there, you know what? They're going to be replaced. Here's what he had to say yesterday. This is an opportunity, but it can be taken away at any moment. This is a Blues team. If, if I'm on this group right now, you got a healthy group of players. you got Nikita Alexandrov, you know, who's watching. you got Scott Prunovich is waiting to get back in. You have an army of willing soldiers down in the American League. I mean, Adam Gaudet is on a tear in the American League right now. You know he's just waiting for his opportunity to get back up here. And, and pretty soon, if you see enough games like this and you're Doug Armstrong, you're going to say, well, if you're not gonna, if you're not a goal scorer, if you're not a playmaker, and you're still not getting noticed, then this is where we gotta filter some other players in here to see what they look. I mean, before you know it, you're gonna see players like Dean and Bull Duke getting opportunities because if if you're not a fourth line, third line player that's kind of mucking up and mixing up and just getting noticed to some degree, whether being physical or going to the net or jumping in there for Tyler Tucker's sake, right at the end, as he was getting kind of one punch by Chernak. I mean, those are the little things that stand out in the game, and and I think it's just the recognition for young players to realize this thing is not forever, and as soon as you're in it could be one day one calendar day flip and all of a sudden you're right back out again and today uh somebody learned that lesson the hard way Hugh McGing who clearly had a terrible game last night has been reassigned uh to the American Hockey League League he's heading back up to Springfield no corresponding move there's the roster freeze that is taking place right now we don't have to spend much time on this at all I I think this is crazy I don't understand why they have reassigned Hugh McGing to the AHL he earned more ice time last night he was working up into the lineup and then got on the second power play unit. He was one of the very few players that I thought actually looked good last night. He showed some speed, but whatever. We'll set that aside for a moment. Alex, the thing is, like, I don't know what the other moves are that you can really make in this regard. Like, who are you sitting? Who are you taking ice time away from? Who are you sending away via trade, waivers, etc.? I, I, I like what he's saying there. I, I think it makes a lot of sense, theoretically speaking, I think given the contracts, though, that are on this team, it's it's kind of hard to see how they actually make the moves that he's discussing. Yeah, I, you're not you're not doing anything in season. Unfortunately, I mean, you're, you're not going to send any of these guys through waivers that are in your top six because there's contracts and you're not going to pay these guys four, five, six million dollars to play in the minors when they should be playing up here. I mean, I guess if you want to go bold moves, but I don't think it really does anything. You could send a captain through waivers, but again, you're paying somebody $3.2 million to play in your minors, and I think he's been fine. I think what Joe's talking about there is talking about some of these guys that need to find a way to make an impact other than scoring goals. Like, yeah, we could sit here and talk about Kyrou and Thomas and Buchnevich having bad games and not creating offense, but at the end of the day, when it's one nothing, two nothing, three nothing, you've got to have somebody else other than those three guys to try and pull you back into the fight. So you're talking about guys like Toropchenko, guys like Jake Neighbors, guys like Alexandrov. I know he wasn't in the lineup, but McEachern, Sunquist, Hugh McGing, and I thought I'm with you. I thought McGing would play a good say, game. I feel like most of those guys were fine. Fine, but at some point you're going to have to do something other than skating into the offensive zone and winning a puck battle and missing the net and then coming back the other way. I mean, what else are we expecting from those? You're going to have to though. get to the front of the net. You're going to have to start at least pushing your weight around to what Joe's talking about there. There's got to be some type of fight bite to these types of players that can drag everybody else into the fight. And I don't think that's there right now. And you know, what Joe's saying is you've got a ton of hungry dudes that probably want to get an opportunity here. And Adam Gaudet, I'm surprised he hasn't got an opportunity up here yet because this is a guy who's put up what 20 goals in the minors right now. And it's a guy that's fighting to get back to the NHL, a Nathan Walker, who as much as we 
joke around that he's not a top nine forward. He's a fourth line player and you know what you're going to get. At least it's a guy that's not afraid to do stuff post whistle and go to the front of the net and take some blows and try and pull his team back into the fight. Right now, if if you're Doug Armstrong and staff, isn't and you're, that Tyler Tucker's job? Like he's been doing that. One guy can't do it though, and if Tyler Tucker's not on the ice, other guys got to do it. Tyler Tucker was in the middle of it with Eric Chernak, and there were four other guys standing around watching it happen. I mean, I mean, that was also right next to their bench, and it was like a weird setting. I there's there's roles. And there are guys that aren't playing to their role. Can, can who, I, who would you say is not playing to their role, though? I guess that's what I'm confused by. Like, I, Oscar Sundquist isn't a dude. Like, he goes to the dirty areas, but he's not a guy that's going out there and fighting for you. Like, no, I, well, and I'm not talking about fighting, but who are the guys last night that went to the front of the net and parked themselves there? I, mean, I think Sonny kind of did that. I, I don't know who else on this team profiles as that uh, player, I mean, though. you had three guys on that fourth line. McEachern's one of them that should be probably doing that. Hugh McGinn was. the front of the net? Yeah. Mackenzie McEachern? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you've got guys right now that are playing too much perimeter hockey, and you're not going to win perimeter hockey. And if you don't got guys that are willing to do that, if you don't got guys that are willing to jump in post-whistle, then there are other guys who are willing to do that in the minors to what Joe's talking about. And I think we're going to see Sammy play. Like, he's a guy that's willing to do that stuff. I I think there was a reason why Hugh McGing got the opportunity over him recently. I, I think McGing has just played better than Blay did earlier in the season, but... Blake's probably going to get back into the lineup now based on McGee going down to the AHL. So maybe that's what they want out of him is, hey, Sammy Blay, I, I know what he's going to bring me. And he is that player that you're talking about there, Alex. It's going to stand in front of the net and he's going to get into it after the, the whistle. Like, I just think this team hasn't been very good on the ice. I don't know that it's about the post whistle stuff. I don't know that it's about any. I it's think about just, the post whistle stuff when you're down by two goals, three goals. But see, this but was, to the, get to avoid being down by two or three goals, you got to be better. Like just the performance has not been there. Yeah, but the it was an unlucky. To, but it was an unlucky bounce that led to being down by a goal last night. And then, they were they had given up like twelve to two in terms of the shots by the time that they had that unlucky bounce though. They, they, they were not down twelve to two in shots. It was the first two minutes. It was the first two minutes of the game, and they were bad. They, Fine, they, but it was one goal that that happened because it yeah, bounced. The entire first period, they understandable. Were bad. But that's the fight I'm talking about. But here's when a, you're down by a goal and you're not finding ways to pull your team back into the game, yeah, play better. And that's it's on, not that's about going on your fighting or doing the post whistle scrum stuff. Like play better. Go out there and give your team a fighting chance on the ice between the whistles before the play is stopped. That's where you need to be better. And I think that Hugh McGee gave him a chance last night. He was one of your best players on the ice and was rewarded accordingly. And now he's the guy that's being sent down to the AHL. Frankly, I think that's a bad message to send Agreed. to your team. I think you have now taken away ice time at the NHL roster from one of the very few guys that I could pinpoint from last night that actually tried that actually went out there and made an impact that I was watching. And I, one of the things that I was going to bring up today on the show was, man, human King showed me a little something last night. And now we can't even talk about that. And the players are like, okay, bye McGing. See ya. Go back down to the AHL. Hopefully we'll see you at some point over the course of the next three months. But I, I think that was a bad message to send to them, especially after a night where you benched Pavel Buchnevich and his opportunity on the power play went to human King. So I, that, to me, was a strange I, move by the Blues. I, I don't disagree with what Alex has said, where they need guys to pull them into the fight sometimes, because there are times where that is going to happen through an 82-game season, where you need a night where, you know what, you just don't have your legs, someone's going to provide a spark. Maybe it is something that's extracurricular after the whistle. The problem I have, though, is a lot of the times that we've said, really the last two years with some of their top players now, with Kairou, Thomas, Buchnevich, is, oh, well, the third line's got to pull them into the fight. 
What if if that's what we have to say about the roster right now is the third line of Torpchenko and them have to pull you into a fight because your top line didn't show up again for a night? There's your issue. Circle that top line. There's the issue for the St. Louis Blues. Those those top guys, the ones that we just said that you got to play better, that should be your top line. That should be your top six that need to play better. And they need to be pulled into the fight by the third line? Come on. That's just unacceptable. And that's where, like, do I think they're going to make any kind of move where it is, oh, well, they're – I know Army threatened, though, we could put guys through waivers and send them down the minors. I don't think they're doing that. You want to send a message, if you continue to not get production from a Cairo, and he's going to continue to have games where it is, I'm just not sure if I'm going to play. And I'm just saying Cairo's name as a placeholder, because sure. last night, Bucinavich was the one who got the punishment, quote-unquote, by being benched in the third period. If that's really, you want to send a message to the team, put one of the contracts in the press box for a game. That's the message that you send. I don't think you're putting anybody through waivers. You can mark that down. They're not doing that. I don't see them paying somebody six, eight, four million dollars to go play for them in the in the minor leagues. Put them in the press box for a game or two. That's where you can start to send the message. And that's why I agree with you. I think the sending McGing down thing sends the wrong message. It reminded me a lot about Tyler O'Neill with the St. Louis Cardinals, where it was Tyler O'Neill complained his knees hurt in Tampa Bay. But yet you continue yep. to throw him into the lineup? No, sit him. If he wants to complain about his knees, sit him or put him on the IL and bring up somebody that wants to play. I thought there was a chance McGinn got moved up in the lineup as opposed to being sent down to the AHL. That's why I thought it was a weird move because, like, if we're going to do this, somebody on the text line said, guys, is it just because they're going into the holiday break? There's not a break. Like, that's the thing that I don't understand is they're, they're not breaking anything. Like The Blues are playing every other day for the next 10 days. He could get every opportunity here in the NHL if they wanted to allow for that. I think what they're trying to do is get Sammy Blay going. And this is just not the time, in my opinion, where you need to get Sammy Blay going into the lineup. I I, I don't understand this one at all. But again, it's Hugh McGing. Like, I'm not going to lose any sleep over this. It, it is what it is. I think it's a bad message to send, but whatever. Last night in the first period, they were outshot 13-4 to at 5-on-5. Five five. You never entered the match. Like, it, it was as if they were sleepwalking through the entire first period. So whether we want to talk about it, Alex, with the physicality, the front of the net, whatever it is, they didn't show up. They didn't skate. They didn't play hard. And that is the stuff that is just completely unacceptable on every possible level. From the top line to the fourth line and everybody in between. You can throw the defensive core in there as well. They got outplayed in front of their net. You can put Jordan Bennington in there, frankly. I don't think he had a very good night last night. One of the very few games. He's been good all season long for the most part. Did not perform very well, in my opinion, last night. All of it. They they didn't show up. They didn't show up down in Tampa Bay. Yeah, and uh, I mean... The other part, like we're talking about that they're not showing fight. And yeah, obviously you want the physicality. But here's the other thing. You didn't win a board battle last night. The last two games you won like over 60% of your board battles. That's the other fight that we're talking about. Like if if, if guys are just going to go one and dones in the offensive zone, then what are they accomplishing? They're not accomplishing anything. Again, look at the heat map. There was nothing in front of Vasilevsky last night. It was go into the zone, take your shot, miss the shot, skate back out and go back in. And that right there was not what they played against Ottawa and Dallas. Every time, and Lou Korak had a great piece talking with Torpchenko about how Torpo said that he realized and recognized Miro Haskinen at times in that Dallas Stars game was hunched over trying to catch his breath because the Blues were forcing them to make bad decisions. Last night, they waited for Tampa Bay to do something, and they reacted. If you're going to play reactionary hockey, you're going to lose. You're going to be playing chase hockey, whereas 
last night you were chasing Tampa Bay, Ottawa and Dallas, you were forcing Tam- you were forcing those two teams into making bad decisions by your board battles. He's Alex Ferrario, that's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're seeing a spreading of the wealth in high school recruiting in college football right now. What does that mean as we enter the new college football playoff landscape? We'll get into that coming up at 1230. More likely to happen coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service X line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We'll tell you which one's more likely here on BK and Ferrario coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. We're seeing a spreading of the wealth in high school recruiting as today is national signing day and each of the top 10 recruits are going to a different school. We've never seen that before. We'll discuss it coming up here in just a little bit. But let's start with this from the 314. Guys, more likely to happen. Buchnevich or Bennington are traded before the start of next season. I'd say Buchnevich. I think you'll see. I think you could see a Buchnevich trade depending on where the team's at deadline this year or in the offseason. I think it really comes down to and they can't have contract negotiations until the offseason, which I think has to be July 1st. So maybe you can't even figure that out. But it comes down to if teams are really desperate for an offensive player and what the Blues are searching for. I don't think you give up Jordan Bennington regardless because it doesn't seem like Joel Hofer's ready for that, and you don't have another uh, goaltender. So I would say it's Buchnevich. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Alex. I think it's more likely it's Buchnevich. I think there's a chance they deal him at the trade deadline this year because you'll get more for him with a year and a half of control still. Um, I, I can't see them trading Bennington because, like you said, they don't really have anybody. Like, Hofer could eventually be a number one goalie, but you're probably two, three years away from that. Then you got Zarenko that's in the minors, Subban that's in the minors. Like, you're taking a step back if you trade Jordan Bennington. That's the start of a rebuild. Yeah, that that's a rebuild because then you're really you don't have anybody ready to go in right. that spot. The other thing is once you trade your goalie, you're always looking for that goalie. It's kind of similar to what we've talked about with like the David Perron. Once you get let David Perron walk, you're looking for that one-time shot on the power play. Once you let Alex Petrangelo walk, you're looking for a number one defenseman. If you were to let uh, Pareko go, you're looking for a big puck-moving defenseman that can play big-time minutes for you. So it's the same thing with Jordan Bennington. If you let him go, you're in the spot that Edmonton's in. You're in the spot that so many of these other contenders get into where they've got everything else they need, but they can't stop the puck. And if you can't do that, you can't win in the playoffs. Bennington allows you to have that opportunity. And let's say you trade Bennington this deadline and you go into the offseason, you're still going to have to sign a goaltender to be the backup to Joel Hofer who could play 40 games, 30 games in a season. And the going rate for goaltenders right now to do that is three and a half, four and a half million dollars. So you'd be better off keeping a guy who can win you a playoff series if you get there. From the 618, more likely to happen. Sonny Gray gets to 200 strikeouts this year. Or Jordan Walker hits at least 33 home runs. For context, uh, Sonny Gray has finished with at least 200 strikeouts once in his major league career it took place in 2019 with the cincinnati reds uh his previous career high other than that is 183 which took place both last season and in 2014 with oakland so more likely to happen at least 200 strikeouts for sunny gray or 33 home runs for jordan walker i'll go jordan walker because i think his raw power could get you there i mean both sides are going to have injuries at some point uh, but although Sonny Gray, 32 starts last season, so he made it through with no injuries. But I 
200 strikeouts is tough, especially if you've only done it once, where I think Jordan Walker could get to that 33 home run number. Yeah, I would say more likely Walker gets to that 33 home run number um, because I, I think, I don't know if, I don't think either is going to happen this year, but once Walker does start to get into his prime and really starts to learn his power, he's got 30, 35 home run power. It's bad, I believe. So I could see where he could get to 33. Gray's only done it once and ever since that year. Like his strikeout stuff's been very good, but it hasn't been at 10 and a half strikeouts per nine uh, outside the COVID year. And I, that's just a tough task for him. So I, I would say it's definitely more likely Walker hits the 30 plus home runs. 33 home runs is a lot, man. I know. 200 strikeouts is a lot. I know, but I've I've seen like this is probably going to be the best season that you get out of Sonny Gray would be my assumption. He just is coming off right now of a second place Cy Young candidacy season. 33 home runs from a kid as young as Jordan Walker is. I mean, there were there were 18 players in Major League Baseball last season that hit at least 33 home runs. 18. Do I think Jordan Walker is going to be a top 18 player when it comes to his home run power in 2024? I do not. <laughs> so I would say it's more likely, actually, that he gets to 200 strikeouts, speaking of Sonny Gray, uh, just because of where they're at in their respective careers. More likely to happen. The Blues get a defenseman off of their roster by this season via trade or buyout. Yeah, that was going to be one of mine because I'm curious if they're going to waive somebody or trade somebody. I would say buyout. I, I don't think they're going to be able to trade one of these defensemen. I, I, the cap's going up. Teams are going to be more willing to take on a larger lump of salary in the offseason. But I don't know if you're going to get somebody who's willing to take it on for two or three, four years. So I'll say that they're going to it'll be buying out somebody, <laughs> waving somebody before it would be trading somebody are we counting like trading Scandella this year because like i then i'm yeah. gonna say more likely they trade somebody because i i think they could get oh somebody. i was going the contract terms yeah, yeah. trading I, I somebody think you could trade Scandella at least now if we're going based on like term like you just said there i would say buy somebody out but like i don't think either is gonna happen i mean i could see where you buy out a letty or a Krug. that's probably more of an off-season thing than it is in season yeah. but i i could see it at least yeah, so that, that was where my mind was at buying yeah. out or in the off-season but yeah i mean scandal is going to be traded yeah because you're going to at least get third or fourth round pick for him for how he's played yes sweep it it's trade i i will believe that they're going to buy somebody out when they actually do it we've never seen it we've never seen it under doug armstrong and i know that they've threatened it they've threatened the idea of sending these guys through waivers I mean, Yakub Verano was put through waivers. Cool. We saw that happen last year, too. That's how the Blues ended up getting him. That's how we got put. He's, he's been through waivers multiple times over the past couple of years. I don't think they're actually going to do that with one of their big time players. I'd be shocked if they did that. So I think that it's via trade. No doubt about it. More likely to have a big game this weekend. Lamar against the 49ers or Goff against the Vikings. I got to go golf against the Vikings. I don't know if Lamar is going to be able to have a big game against the 49ers. Has anybody really had a big game against the 49ers? Uh, like they quarterback? had a three-week stretch where they didn't play very well. So but what, probably they enough. were missing. Weren't they missing? Was it Warner or was it Bosa? Uh, I don't know. I can't uh, remember that Bengals game. Uh, they, they added 31 points, 285 and three through the air for Joe Burrow. That'd probably be the last time. Yeah. But I mean, do I think that Lamar is going to have the type of game through the air that Joe Burrow did against this 49ers defense? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely go with Jared Goff. And trust me, I've been through <laughs> the Goff experience. Um, that Minnesota defense is better than I was expecting, but 
it's not the buzzsaw that the 49ers are. So I would definitely say golf. Yeah, I would probably go golf as well. But if you're talking fantasy, I'm starting Lamar. I'm not benching Lamar for Jared Goff. The running well, is good. too I'm, valuable. I'm, let's talk about this because well, I have both guys on my other fantasy team, <laughs> and I can only start one quarterback. Goff so we're and going, Lamar? Yeah, we're going Lamar. I would go Lamar because of the upside. Jared Goff, to hit his upside, has to throw for like 370 yards. Lamar has to run for 50 and a touchdown and then throw for 250 through the air. And I think he could absolutely do that. So uh, the, the rushing ability, like I'm always going to side with the guy that runs over the guy that gets all of his fantasy value through the air. It's why all of the guys that go top five, six rounds in fantasy football for quarterbacks are all rushing quarterbacks. Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts, Patrick Mahomes has value on the ground. He typically has like 400 to 500 yards on the ground every year. So, yeah, I, w- I would go with Lamar. See, I was leaning golf. <laughs> I mean, go with whoever your gut tells you because you'll second guess it. And at this point in the season, go with your gut. Um, but I, It I is playoff time. Uh, more likely to happen in 2024. T-Bone gives up hot dogs or he defeats Brooke at Pickleball. Uh, defeats Brooke at Pickleball. No shot. I'm giving up the dogs. Okay. You, you, you can't give up the best the best meal on the planet. No way. And like, look, I say that as a guy that's going to attempt to get in shape for a week in January. And then move <laughs> oh, away from Yeah. Things could be Good my you, New Year's week. resolution. Yeah. You getting a Peloton? You think I got money for a Peloton? <laughs> Mr. Peloton's a bike on a concrete blocks in the basement. I don't even have a basement. No. I meant the laundry room at your apartment complex. No, no, definitely. It'll make sure that you're there. Hey, if you put, if you provide the Peloton for others, they'll probably stay in the laundry room. So that way you don't have to wait for them to get their laundry out for you. You just lock something on the screen so nobody else uses it. a total BK move, which is be on the bike not finish the workout by the time that the laundry's done and i still gotta move it out of the laundry room by the way i can do laundry tonight i'm dreading it because it sucks this time of year where you gotta walk outside in the cold you should do that old school laundry where you put it in a bucket with water and soap and honestly would not be opposed dryer li- or a clothesline outside on your deck well, not a lot's gonna dry it this time of year <laughs> no but it's fine it's fine blow dry it i definitely Got i definitely would uh Say more likely I'd be broken yeah, pickleball than giving up hot dogs. Hot dogs ain't going anywhere. Let's stick with the NFL for one more more likely to happen. Guys, more likely to pull off the upset this weekend. The Cowboys going into Miami and beating the Dolphins or the Ravens going into San Francisco and beating the 49ers? Ah, uh, Cowboys against the Dolphins in Miami or the Ravens against the 49ers in San Francisco? I think I would go Cowboys in Miami because... Honestly, I, both of them seem very unlikely, but Miami's defense has been so up and down that I really don't know what to expect. I, I'm definitely going the Cowboys. I think they're more likely to do this. I, I think the Dolphins are a weaker opponent. I think the 49ers are the only great team in the NFL this year. And at home, I don't think that they're going to beat the Ravens. Yeah, you can sweep it. How about them Cowboys? Because I, I, Miami hadn't beaten anybody good this year. Like They remind me of like USC in college football. Where it is great offense, but man, when they play somebody good, no chance. So I would definitely say Dallas. To be fair, though, the Cowboys are kind of that team, too. They are mirror <sighs> images of one another, the Cowboys and the Dolphins. Well, I mean, well, okay, Philly's, Philly's not all that great no. either. Yeah. No, Phillies are not good. Right, well, something's got to give. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next, we are seeing a spreading of the wealth in high school recruiting. Could this pay off with better college football playoff 12-team entries coming up over the next few years? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
BK, it's a new era for recruiting in college football. At least that's what this year would indicate. Of the top 10 recruits on Rivals.com, every single one of them has committed to a different team. So you've got one committed to Ohio State, another Nebraska, Missouri, Alabama, Auburn, Texas Tech, Oklahoma, Georgia, and Texas. And then the last one in the list is committed to Miami. It is the first time in the last 23 years, which is the entire Rivals era, in which each of the top 10 players in the country are committed to different schools. Normally what you see is these guys will consolidate, right? You've got like three teams where they go to. They go to Ohio State, they go to Alabama, they go to USC, or they go to Georgia. That's pretty much it. Now, maybe they end up somewhere else via the transfer portal down the road, but when they sign coming out of high school, it's very rare, actually, literally unprecedented that you see something like this. And Alex, when you combine this, With the 12-team college football playoff that will begin this upcoming season and the one-time transfer for rule that is now in play and NIL, all of this coming together simultaneously, I do think next season has the potential to be a wild college football year, which will be similar to this season where it's like, okay, Alabama doesn't look like they have the same depth as they have in recent seasons. Georgia, while very good, Not quite what they have been previously, because now instead of having guys in the three or four deep that are all four or five star recruits formerly, now they've got guys that are like third on the depth chart that are merely really good players that are unprepared right now to be starters if the top two guys were to go down. Look at the transfer portal rankings over on 24-7 sports. Top two guys coming from Texas A&M after that. Oklahoma, Georgia, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Clemson, A&M, Notre Dame, Georgia, Texas. These are guys that previously were four and five star recruits going to those places that are now ending up at other schools. Now they're going to Ole Miss, Michigan State, Mizzou, Ole Miss again, Kentucky, these Michigan guys, State, where's Illinois? I didn't hear Illinois at all. These oh, guys are no longer <laughs> consolidating all to the same four teams, which I think makes for a better product. As somebody that is not a fan of a blue blood, I think it's better when you've got more teams that are a part of the conversation. And right now, there are more teams a part of the conversation at a national level than ever have been in the history of this sport. And I think it's a perfect time, too, because you're getting this 12-team playoff next year, and you're going to see more teams with names attached to it that isn't always the Alabama, Georgia, Clemsons that have all of the recruiting classes and you're like, okay, well, they're the juggernaut of the group. When you're opening up that many teams into a playoff field, you do want to spread the wealth in terms of the talent and the names that go into it. I think that's the great part about college football because it always felt like when you were talking about the biggest names that were playing, you always had to just focus in on the Alabamas and the Georgias and you were thinking, okay, well, cool. I'm going to see the top five players in the draft in this one game. Now we're talking about from five different schools and five different players, which again, I'm more excited now about that 12 team playoff because of this than what it would have been three, four, five years ago. And I think because of this too, like I I don't think you're going to see, and this was one of my concerns when it was originally announced at the 12 team playoff was, okay, well, when you get that eight seed that ends up winning, let's say, and they end up playing the one seed, they're just going to get just destroyed. I mean, it will still probably happen to some teams. But I think because you're starting to see the talent kind of go across the country more of more evenly than it had in year in month, like five ten years ago, I think you're now going to see much more com- competitive college football ga- playoff games for that top twelve. Because originally, like let's think about it, really the last two years, have you had? 
competitive one through four games in the college football playoff. Typically, there's been just the top two teams dominating the first round, and then you get a good game in the college football championship. I think because of what we're starting to see across college football, that first round is going to be exciting. The winner of the first round is going to stand a chance to pull off an upset in the second round, and it's just going to continue from there. So I, I... I think college football is in a really good spot in terms of the way that the talent is starting to get divvied up. It's the first time where I've looked at college football and said to myself, they might have their stuff together. Well, (laughs) and to be fair, like there's a lot of stuff that also still needs to get fixed. And like, I'm saying for fans, I guess I should, I should preface that as a fan of the sport where I'm like, Hey man, this is actually getting better. Like there's stuff that is happening right now that you look at from the outside looking in and you're like, it's starting to make sense compared to what it previously was. Now, we got to fix the calendar. Right now, this stuff that's all taking place, the portal, signing day, all of this, imagine this next year where teams are literally preparing over the next week or two to host college football playoff games on their home campus for the first time in the history of the sport. Meanwhile, they're having to deal with all of this stuff that's out there. That ain't going to be easy for any of these coaches, and the calendar needs to get fixed. That is something on the to-do list. They also have to figure out what are the conference landscapes going to look like in future years. There was a report yesterday that Florida State is now once again looking around on what their options can be after being left out of the college football playoff despite going 13-0. and Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say the ACC is not going to be around five years from now. So that's something that will need to get fixed. The fact that all of these NIL deals are year to year and basically everybody becomes a free agent again the next season yeah it's probably something they should look into as well all of that will eventually come to the forefront but for right now if we're just talking about hey is college football a better product today than it was this time five years ago I think the answer to that is an unequivocal yes and I'm also saying this as a Mizzou fan where my team is benefiting about as much as anybody I haven't really noticed <laughs> I think Ole Miss is probably the team right now, if you guys haven't seen, they are putting together a monster recruiting class via the transfer portal right now. They are probably number one on the list of teams slash programs that have benefited the most. Number two might be Mizzou right now because of what they are doing, both via the transfer portal and via the recruiting rankings. They're a top 25 class right now. Once again, sounds like it's official, by the way. Uh, Ryan Wingo is officially going to Texas. We'll see you in Mizzou uh, next year, buddy. Uh, As you enter the transfer portal, we know how this works. Come on back home. We'll see you then. That sounded like a threat. But as I look at some of the other teams, like, Illinois, eventually, if they get their NIL stuff going, (laughs) they could benefit from this. You look at some of these other teams that like Oregon has benefited in a massive way. They're basically back to where they were in like the early 2010s. That's good, man. It's good for this to become less of a regional sport where it's just Alabama, Georgia, Alabama, Georgia, Alabama, Georgia, and then maybe in an off year, Florida State or Ohio State or Michigan. It's good for other teams outside of the like classic blue buds to have an opportunity to do something meaningful and i think now it's going to be even harder and more impressive for a team that if they can build a kind of quote-unquote dynasty run like when you think of alabama and yesteryear you think of clemson during that run um you think of really georgia the last what two years i would say where they won back-to-back championships went undefeated and then this year they couldn't get over the hump where they lost to bama in the championship game when you do start to see a program build a kind of a dynasty run where they get to the playoff for six plus years, and if they're really contending, like getting to the semifinals, get to the championships, that I, that's what I'm saying. It's harder. I don't want to say you can't do it because I think you still can. I think the best coaches will be able to pull it off. 
but it's going to be harder and it's going to be more impressive when they do do it compared to the last 10 years. Like that Alabama run, like, don't get me wrong, that was really impressive. Yeah, yeah but it was a lot easier then, too, to do it compared to the modern day football. It's essentially like pro sports prior to free agency. Yeah. That's what we're seeing is it's really hard to be the Patriots. The Patriots in the last 20 years, like the San Antonio Spurs, right? To stay at the top as long as those organizations did is damn near impossible. You can have a three, four, five-year run in your respective sport, but eventually you're going to have to cycle through guys, and eventually you end up replacing players with the wrong guys. You go to the portal and it misses, right? Look at Mizzou basketball this year. Went to the portal last year, it hit. All of it worked, and you end up in the NCAA tournament, and year one went as well as you could have possibly asked for for Dennis Gates. Year two, you get guys that you think kind of profile similarly, and maybe you're going to get guys on the upswing. It has not gone as well. And now, instead of looking at a team that's likely heading to the NCAA tournament, you're kind of hoping to get to the NIT this year for Mizzou basketball, and maybe it gets better next year. The same thing could happen for a lot of these schools in college football. The other thing that happens, T-Bone, to your point on the teams that end up getting there that are at the top of the college football landscape, man, those teams, when they get there, the players are going to ask for more money because I just helped you win a national championship. I should be rewarded for such. And if you're not going to let me do that here, and these teams have a budget, like there's only so much money to go around. I'm a zoo, apparently. It feels unlimited, but there is only so much money to go around. There's going to be certain guys where you have to go to them and say, hey, man, like we'd love to give you a raise from what we were paying you. We can't. We got to pay our quarterback five million bucks. We've got 15 to go to the entire team and our wide receiver that went for a thousand yards this year has taken up three our offensive tackle that we're keeping out of the nfl draft for another year we had to give him a million and a half like i don't have anything for our second best linebacker we think you're great but you could go to Ole miss or mizzou or uh usc or wherever and get another million bucks there we just don't have that to offer to you here well and i think it's also you got the you got these kids that feel like we talk about it in pro sports too where like free agents you think they're going to stick with a team that's so successful and they say no i want to go to this place because i want to be the reason i turn it around exactly college kids are starting to be this way too to where it's like no i rather than stay at georgia and be part of a championship team i want to go elsewhere and be the reason i turned a school around and, and that was that, luther burden yeah, yeah exactly i was just about to say if you are a kid that can have that kind of an impact like luther burden um i don't know who else would fall in that category off the top of my head but if you chase brown for illinois they didn't get to the playoff, but eh, close enough. You you have that kind of impact. You're a folk hero for life at mm-hmm. that school. No matter what you do in the NFL, like Luther Burton, I think he's going to be great once he gets to the NFL level. He could go there, be out of the league in three years. Who cares about that? He's going to be a folk hero at Missouri if he gets them to the college football playoff next year. Absolute legend. If he becomes the guy that turns things around at Missouri, was the beginning point, the starting point of that? That dude will be remembered as fondly as anybody in the history of the program. And you you can go to Georgia. You can become the next guy that is in a long line of players that helps them win a national championship. You could do that. And listen, like I'm not talking down to any of those players that go do it. Sounds like a pretty good life. Make a good amount of money. Go play in Athens. Live in Georgia. Play for the best team in the country. End up going to the NFL. Like That's a nice path for you. But there becomes something that is a little bit different that speaks to a different player to go to your home school or to go somewhere else, right, that hasn't had that amount of success yet, and to build something from the ground floor up. And that's what Luther Burden is trying to do at Mizzou. I do think there could come a point in time, T-Bone, where this does happen or something similar happens if they get the right people in place at Illinois. Uh, Kansas is doing something like this. I don't like the Jayhawks, but they just signed their best recruit ever in the history of their program this year, a defensive end, 
out of the state of Arizona. Why is that guy going to Kansas? Well, I don't know, but their coach is really good. They had some success this year. They're capitalizing on it now on their recruiting trail. I think you're going to see more stuff like that that happens in future seasons, and I think all of that is good. Just like in Major League Baseball where you want to keep as many teams and fan bases interested as long as humanly possible, the same thing is true in college football. You want to keep these fan bases interested, invested, and the way to do that is is by having more of them invited to the party at the end with the college football playoff and have more of them have a chance to get there by getting more of the top-level players to spread across the country instead of just going to the same four schools every year. Uh, Today's just the latest example of that. Again, the top 10 recruits are all going to different schools for the first time in the history of rivals. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, there was a stat today in the paper about the Blues and how much they're losing by that legitimately blew my mind. When this team loses, they lose big. We'll get into that coming up in about 10 minutes or so, but coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Let's dive into the Junk Drawer. I got a bone to pick today, boys. Yeah? Yep. Being the commissioner of this league in our 101 ESPN Fantasy League has been one of the great accomplishments of my life. Well, well, and I might have to resign. Resign? Yep. It might be the last year that I do this. I I think you have to enact your most powerful move and suspend somebody. That's what I'm saying. So this morning, I get in and Alex makes me aware that somebody has made a roster move that might be... Immoral? Yeah, you thought you were pissed. When I saw this move, I'm like, you got to be bleeping kidding me. So I'm not going to tell you who did this oh, well, at first. Oh, I'll, yeah. I'll say I who did get, it. I will make the name known here in just a little bit, but I'm going to tell you what happened first, and then we'll tell you who did it. Actually, text us. Air Comfort Service text line yeah. 314-399-9646. When BK explains, tell us who you think it is, because everybody's going to know. So, <laughs> will they? No. Somebody. <laughs> They're going to say it's BK. <laughs> at 101. That is no longer involved. We're down to the top four. It's T-Bone, Carey, Brooke, and Alex. And Alex that are in the top four right now. Congratulations to the two of you. Well represented on our show. I was 13th in the league. I'm not even a part of the consolation prize uh, bracket. Yikes. I was eliminated from first. the 11th place game. <laughs> I <laughs> so, forgot he picked first. Not good. So what happened this morning? I get in. There's a roster move that's been made. Debo Samuel has been dropped. <laughs> Feels kind of weird. Coming off of a 33-point well, performance. For Taylor Heineke. Oh, and the player that, or the person that dropped him is participating this week in the 11th place game against Tim McKernan. Wow, he didn't have to throw that name out And the there. person that was at the top of the waiver wire was the second best team this season. Also the co-host of a show. Randy Carricker did this, boys. Trash. I someone decided said someone unilaterally. I'm gonna go ahead and eliminate this move. I'm putting Debo Samuel back on Randy's roster. I am putting Taylor Heineke back into free agency. And I sent a text to the group. And I made everybody aware of the move that I decided to make as the commissioner of this great league. 
said, I wanted to make sure that you're all aware that I made a roster edit for Randy's team this morning. He dropped Steve Samuel for Taylor Heineke while playing for the 11th place game. I'd made the decision to undo that roster move because it would have created an unfair advantage for our league. I hope everybody understands. And if Randy would still like to add Taylor Heineke, he's more than welcome to do so for somebody other than the player that's averaged more than 20 points per game over the past. Yeah, like all of his mediocre players on the bench. He had freaking Joe Flacco on his bench and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I need to drop Debo Samuel so I could pick Taylor Heineke for 11th place. The guy he's playing with hasn't even checked his roster in five weeks. Randy said, damn, I can't slip anything past you. Yeah, I vote. I call look, I, I've never gained more respect for our commissioner in Brandon Kyle. Well, he's got to make a Somebody move before said, I can say that. Is it a two-quarterback league? If so, I get it. No, you don't no, drop He Debo already had Samuel. one quarterback, and his second one was Joe Flacco. Jordan Love and Joe Flacco was on his team, and one of those two... The he, list of players he could have dropped, not named Debo Samuel, include Quentin Johnston, Noah Gray, Josh Kelly, Sky Moore, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, or Joe Flacco, or one of the two defenses that he currently has on the roster, including the Chargers defense, which is playing against the Buffalo Bills this upcoming weekend. So now, man, it didn't make sense. There was no scenario in which this was an acceptable roster move. One word, collusion. And the the commissioner should enact a suspension for one full year. (laughs) Forget a full year for life. And if you want to kick out the person that he was colluding with, I, I'd like to just connect the dots and say Kerry Davis was a part of it, trying oh, to get Debo Samuel for first place. You can call out Kerry Davis. I will not be doing I, so. I'll say it now, so I forget believe, about it. I believe on my reporting that it's a different co-host that tried the collusion. Oh. Yes. Oh. So I smell two bands coming. Oh, so both. Yeah, but both of those people we believe were colluding also play against both for this week. So <laughs> yeah, you and I, just, so what you're saying is trying to defeat our show yeah. and I'm not allowing so it. Yeah, that's right. So what you're saying, we should just already in state that the championship round is being played between me and Tanner and kick out no, both sides. Because I no. think I think Kerry Davis is innocent. And in that case, you got to be. Well, I think Brooks so Grizzly's innocent. Brooke? Yeah, I think Brooks innocent. I think she knew she couldn't take ba- take down T-Bone. I, I mean, I just mowed through this league. I think Brooks innocent, and I think Carrie knew that Ferrario was on a hot streak playing great defense in fantasy football playing by winning by team. eight points for the last six yeah. weeks. You said trash really league and trash commissioner. I'll be listening for the fallout tomorrow morning on the opening drive. All right, good sir, yeah. madam. Demand a suspension. Good luck defending that There kind is of no scenario in which Randy will try to defend this Oh, he move. will. Oh, he will. This is a pure troll move by him. That's all he was doing. He was trying to troll the league and trying to make good for the fact that he didn't understand how waivers worked earlier in the season. This was a pushback. When he decided to make a roster move, forgot that he made a roster move and got put to the back of the line, which is how waivers work. And now he's trying to get back at me. And he couldn't do it. You know where trolls belong? Not in this league. But you know what? Everybody suffers from that move by Randy. Because I worked hard to get to this point. My respect out the door. Unbelievable. No more. Have some no have some respect on the grain the game. I don't think he should be removed from the league. I oh, don't think God. he should be suspended. My respect Weak. for you is gone too. Weak. No, you're putting the hammer down. I, I we have righted the wrong. He is no longer going to drop Debo Samuel, which seems like a fair fair move. Hundred dollar fine. Yeah, we don't play this league for money, sir. Uh, that would be illegal. Coming up in about 15 yeah. minutes Wait, or don't? so, it seems like the NL Central has decided to run it back. Is that what's uh, making the decisions for the Cardinals? We'll get into that coming up here in just a little bit. But next, 
When the Blues lose, why do they seem to lose so big? We'll talk about it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. lose it's another thing entirely to get absolutely destroyed and alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kylie when I lost this year at fantasy football Alex my team typically got absolutely shellacked and that's why I'm not even in the consolation prize bracket uh, in our should fantasy have found a league. way to play the system like Randy Carricker did the Blues <laughs> should figure out how to play that system as well because so far this year all 15 of the Blues regulation losses have been by multiple goals only Chicago and San Jose have more multi-goal losses on the season. Last night was also the third time that the Blues have lost by at least five goals this season, which trails only the Sharks. These are the worst teams in the NHL, Alex. This is not the grouping that you want to be involved with. And this is why Doug Armstrong, when he spoke with the media the other night, he said, it's not even about our record. It's about how we lose. When we lose, it is a non-competitive environment. Far too many games where you can tell based on what you see in the first period, if the Blues even showed up to the rink that night. I mean, if you watched that game last night and you watched nothing more than the first 10 minutes, you knew exactly what was happening the next 50. You missed nothing by tuning out for the next 50 minutes of Blues hockey, and that can't happen, and it's happened far too often this season. Alex, why is it happening? Why can't they seem to reject this snowball effect, take that snowball, and instead of allowing it to go down and become an avalanche, just break it up and make it no longer even a snowball any longer. I don't understand. Uh, They don't have the ability to push back. Like uh, you watch that Dallas stars game and you knew that the blues are going to get back into that game because they were playing a very solid style of hockey. They were winning those board battles. They're doing everything that made you believe like, yeah, they're not out of this yet. And that was being down by two goals, but all of those other times that they've lost in regulation, There's zero pushback. You never feel like the Blues can figure out their game. They have the head dip moment that's like, great, we're down. We're not coming back into this. And to to go on top of that that stat you had of of the regulation losses, it's now the 16th time this season that the Blues have given up two or more goals in a less than three-minute span. And just for purposes of understanding where this team is. How many games have they played? Well, they've played, last night was their 31st. So in more than half of their games, they have allowed multiple goals. They've lost a three-minute stretch. They've lost 16 games this season. One in overtime and then 15 in regulation. And on those 16 games, not the losses, but 16 games, which I guess would be the losses because this team's bad. (laughs) They give up two or more goals in a three or less minute span. That's unbelievable. There's no pushback. That's what I was talking about earlier. When you're down by a goal, if you watch some of the best teams, and I, I was writing this down during our commercial break because I was really curious about Nashville, but when you watch the Nashville Predators play, when you watch the Arizona Coyotes play, when you watch the Minnesota Wild play, the teams that are in that middle tier that Doug Armstrong talked about at the beginning of the season, all of them, when they get down by a goal, There's pushback. The other night, Nashville was trailing by two, and they came back to win the game. There's pushback from the opposition to where the Blues this season, when one goal goes in, it's that that stunning moment where they look at it and be like, what just happened? And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 team just strikes on you. 
that's my only understanding of this. And look, I've never played the game. I don't know what the coaches are seeing on tape. But just that stat alone, 16 times this season, when one goal goes in, you can expect two or three goals in a three-minute span, which tells you the Blues don't know how to regain momentum in the hockey game. Yeah, I've never seen anything like this from any sport, where it is the moment that first goal goes in, it is game's over if we've lost. Like that That's the reaction. That is the, well, we know we can't come back in this one because they've done it, what, once? Once this season where they came back from a two-goal deficit? That just shouldn't be a thing. By the way, we talk a lot about how this year is or is not different than last year. How many games do you think they lost last year through the first 31 games by multiple goals? Oh, I Multi-goal would, I, losses. One. They did not have that happen 15. to them. It, it, last year was 15 different games in, in their the first 31 games of the season wow. where they lost by multiple goals. So far this year, 15. It's the same thing. It's the same damn team. It's different players that they kind of mix in and out of the roster. They go about it in different ways. They've gone to a different scheme defensively. The same goalie, but in, I think, playing a much better version of himself this year. Not that you're going to be able to look that up on the fly like this, but... Might be able to. Um, See what the wizardry in my fingers I mean, how many of those were... How many of those were more than two goal deficits, though? Because a lot... Remember, they were awful last year at empty netters. So when they were down by a goal, they'd pull the goalie and they'd give up a goal and they'd lose two. three goals or more? Yeah, three or more goals. Because two goals... Two goal deficit, but, but what I'm meaning by that while you're looking this up, great it's radio right here. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 11 times they lost by at least three goals last year in the first 31 games. That is the same as this year. By the way, they've only had one other year in franchise history that was more than that, mm. and that was 1978. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, because they were awful last season. When they would pull the goaltender and be down by a goal thinking they could get back into it, the They're, team would strike with another empty netter. You know what it reminded me of? Of our power play right now. By the way, because... 1978, the Blues went 18 and 50. Oh gosh! <laughs> I, did they draft? What do you? Where did they draft that year? Nineteen seventy. You said nineteen seventy nine NHL draft. Seventy nine. The nineteen seventy nine NHL draft. The the Blues ended up with Perry Turnbull uh, with the second, second overall. overall pick. There was a worse. He was a team. minus forty seven in his NHL career. So he didn't play a lot. But Perry played Turnbull played six hundred games, but he. Was uh, minus forty-seven. I don't remember him. He was <laughs> traded for Doug Wickenheiser. There you go. And Terry Turnbull is the reason that we won the Monday Night Miracle and didn't go. go beyond that. What a win for us! Yeah, I don't so remember that Blues got to be better than this, man. <laughs> yeah. They've so, got to find a way to prevent this snowball effect. I don't know that they're capable though. And like, if you've seen this exact same thing now, Alex, for two years, different schemes, different situations, different opponents, coach. different coach now, and it's all the same. This is where it will be interesting to see how they respond over the next few weeks. If it doesn't change, this is where you have to look at the cold, hard facts and say to yourself, it's the players. The players need to be changed out. And I'm not sure how it changes this season because it's, I mean, again, it's happened 16 times. If this happened twice at the beginning of the year and now it's happening again, I can say you can write this ship. But like last season, when they couldn't find a way to stop losing from game to game to game, I look at it this season and say, like, it has been a trend that does not go away. When you're losing, it's because the other team scores first and the other team scores two or more goals in a three-minute span and you're playing catch-up hockey. And all of that, that is mental strength from your team to say we're down by one, but we're not out of this one yet. And instead, what's happening right now is we're down by one. This might get ugly quick. And, and I... Not that it matters draft status, but I was just looking at this because Nashville has been so good at avoiding that that trend. 
I mean, people can point to Nashville and say like, oh yeah, but they got Roman Yossi and they've got Philip Forsberg. Like the Blues have as many, you know what? They actually have more first and second round draft picks than the Nashville Predators do. So, I mean, like talent wise, Nashville's playing with guys that are drafted in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round that are putting up points and creating that momentum to pull back that the Blues just aren't doing right now. And I, I hate to say this, but I, I, I think this is where you get to the ro- when you're looking at the roster and you have to seriously ask the question of, okay, who actually loves playing the game of hockey and wants to win a hockey game compared to who's just good at hockey and happens to be doing this as like it's a 9-to-5 job? Because that's what you have to decide. Because going out there and losing a game by one goal, losing by two goals potentially, giving up a late empty netter, and competing from the get-go – that is that is a different story compared to where it is not showing up on a consistent basis for 16-plus games now for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, shouldn't it just be about pride? Exactly. Doesn't there come a point in time where you're like, man, not again. It's not happening again. I'm not allowing that to happen on my and watch I, And again. I don't even mean just like, I don't want to lose again. I don't want to get just shellacked again. But it's hard to have that pride, and I'm not speaking for them. I'm just from outsider's perspective. It's hard to have that pride when people around have been pointing the finger at somebody else because not everybody, but so that I, I love that point, Alex. I really like that point a lot. I feel like there has been way too much focus on Jordan Cairo specifically. And this is not to say that he has not been a problem this year. I am not absolving Jordan Cairo of any blame whatsoever. Cairo once again, was not good enough last night, but Pavel Buchnevich also wasn't good enough last night. Thomas turned the puck over that led to a couple of shorthanded opportunities for I Tampa Bay. I think Shin had a great game last night. Like it, And this is not me calling out individual players. It's to suggest that this entire team has to be better, dude. It's everybody. The defensive core, I feel like every night I've got a new quote from one of the defensive co- defensive guys. It's like, yeah, we know what we got to do, but we got to be more committed to it. Well, then why does it never happen? If every single one of you knows exactly what needs to happen to get this thing turned around, well, a lot of it is just try. A lot of it is just compete. A lot of it is just effort. Why don't we see it? If all of you seem to acknowledge it and say it publicly, all of the right things, where is the lack of putting those words into action? The words this is what I always say about the Cardinals. Don't listen to what they say. Listen to what they do. And when I listen to what the Blues say, man, you'd think they know exactly what it's going to take to be able to go out there and compete night in, night out. But then when I watch what they do, they clearly don't understand The it. problem is those guys that are saying it that you feel like are clear what needs to happen, they're only out there for 45-second spans. But then the next group that's out there for another 45 seconds. they're also not getting it done for those 45 no, seconds. No, they're not. And look, I, I mean, T-Bone sent us this audio. I didn't even see it when I was driving home last night, but Devon Taves had probably about as brutal of a, an answer as you can ask for when talking about losing the Blackhawks. He said, quote, I think we've got some guys who think they're playing well, and I think they're kidding themselves at this point. He went on to say, we play a certain way as avalanche players, and if players aren't playing that way, well, they're going to be left behind. And let's also go back to what David Backus told us, what was that, six months ago, seven months ago, when we had him on and he talked about there was a culture in Boston that if you didn't play into the system or act as a certain way, you were going to be off of that team. And one player was traded following a player that wasn't enacting that way. Right now, everybody points to one player and says, ah, it's Jordan Kyra, Kyra's got a goal. Guys, there's there's 22 other players on that roster that whoever it is, we don't know because there's no nobody's calling out anybody, but whoever that group of players is, 
they're not playing the same system that guys that are trying to win are playing. And guess what? When you've got five out there and two want to play a certain way and the other three are like, let's just dump the puck in and we'll figure out what happens after that. You're not winning hockey games. The Blues this year have lost uh, by three goals or more 11 different times so far this season. Here are the teams that it's taken place against. Tampa, Vegas, Arizona twice, Nashville, the Kings, Winnipeg, Colorado, Vancouver. These are all pretty good teams, right? It also happened by four against San Jose and by three against Columbus, and that's what got the last coach fired was those types of games. And what I am very curious to see is what this ends up looking like against Florida. You're coming back after a terrible performance against Tampa Bay, and then you're going against Florida. If I had to predict, I think they'll lose that game. But then what? Can you rebound at home against Chicago? Because that's a bad team. And last night, they had a win against Colorado. If you don't show up, they'll beat you, man. You've seen this multiple times so far this year. Losing to these good teams on your schedule, it is what it is. We knew that the Blues weren't going to punch up a ton this year. They're not an overly talented team. We accepted that coming in. Getting embarrassed against them regularly, that's where it gets a little tough to handle. And then losing and getting embarrassed against the bad teams on your schedule, that's where it gets unacceptable. That's where you see Doug Armstrong making these dramatic changes where maybe it is a coach that ends up getting fired. Maybe it is a player that ends up getting sent through waivers. Maybe it is a player that ends up after this uh, end of the, whatchamacallit, the player freeze, the roster freeze. Maybe you do see somebody that ends up getting shipped out. Those are the kinds of things that have to be on the table if this does not get correct. I'll say this. There's a reason that Doug Armstrong, Al McKennis, Tim Taylor, all of those people were in attendance on that game. Mm-hmm. There was a reason that all of those guys were in attendance for this road trip. They'll come home. They'll hit the Christmas break. They'll be in attendance for the games leading up to the new year. And in 2024, I would imagine you're going... Jaron Dreger told us that. This will not be the same team post-trade deadline as it is right now. He's Alex. That's T-Bone on BK. Coming up next, it seems like the entire NL Central has some kind of a pact. They're just going to run this thing back next year. Why is this? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. BK, it's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESP, and it seems like the NL Central has just given up. They've given up on the offseason, and man, most of the offseason still remains to be played out. So far this offseason, guys, the Chicago Cubs big offseason move that they have made is nothing. Council. I'll say, have they made one? They haven't made one. Oh, they haven't made Council. a signing so far. Council is a good one. You want to look to uh, the Cincinnati Reds, their offseason signings. Jaime Candelario, Nick Martinez, Emilio Pagan, kind of similar to what the Cardinals have done. Really? Like, okay, fine. You added another infielder and then a couple of guys that, like, I would have liked Emilio Pagan. We talked about him here for St. Louis. He's a middle innings reliever. Pretty good, pretty good move. Nick Martinez, really nice swing guy in your bullpen, maybe a number five starter for you. But these aren't any kind of, like, momentum swinging changes to what you're doing. The Milwaukee Brewers so far this offseason have made exactly one free agent signing. It's Andrew Chafin, who's coming off of his worst year of his recent career. The Cardinals are like the most active team in this division, and they have made one signing that Cardinals fans think moves the needle in any meaningful way so far this offseason. Guys, what's going on with this division? Are, are they just 
saying, hey, everybody else is just kind of looking around saying, are you guys all good with this? What's happening, Alex? I feel like it's uh, the office gif of Michael Scott and uh, Andy Bernard and Dwight all holding guns up, holding it at each other, say, you draw. No, you shoot. No, you shoot. That's what the NL Central general managers are like. Like, you're going to be the one that takes the next step so I can defend myself. Or you're going to be the one that takes the next step so I can defend myself. And then at the end of the offseason, all three are sitting there going, well, I mean, the other guys didn't do anything, so I don't really have to. That's why Milwaukee's pulling Corbin Burns off the board, because Cincinnati hasn't done anything. Chicago hasn't done anything. The Cardinals were the most aggressive. And honestly, if you're Milwaukee, you're probably thinking, okay, defense and pitching gets us at least in the conversation of an NL Central title. So if nobody in the division is going to be aggressive, then what's the point? Meanwhile, the NL East, Philadelphia and Atlanta are always aggressive. So you got to keep up pace there. The Dodgers just did what they did. So if you're the Giants, if you're the Padres, well, you're going to have to make some type of response. Meanwhile, the NL Central is just three guys staring at each other saying, you're going to do something? No, you're going to do something? Okay, cool. Mutual yeah. agreement will stink. Yeah, I, I don't understand why the Cubs have been sitting on their hands because I never thought that they were true. Weird. It'd be one thing if like, they were the team that was like the reported like front runner for Otani, but that was Toronto and the Dodgers. Like I don't think anybody ever really bought in that they were going to be in on Otani. They're not even connected to Yamamoto, so what are they waiting around for? Are they just being friendly and waiting for the market to catch up and then go, okay, now we're going to get a bidding war for all these other guys that are in this mid-tier? I, I don't get the, what the Cubs are doing. The Reds, they're, they're kind of doing what I expected to where everybody's going to say they should add a top-end arm and then ownership was going to be cheap and not add somebody significant to help them and make them a true contender. I, I thought there'd be much more of a seismic shift in the Central this offseason. And so far, it's just... Has not happened, and, and I'm not going to lie, it's got me frustrated because I want to see somebody push the Cardinals. Right now, I think the Cardinals did like the bare minimum to improve upon last year's team. Now, when I say that, they are definitely a better team in like an 85 to 90 win team right now, the way they've constructed the roster. But I wanted to see someone make a move. I wanted to see the Cubs get aggressive or the Reds get aggressive to where it was. Hey, you can't just sign a Sonny Gray to be at the top of your rotation and say, we can win the Central because the Cubs did this or the Reds did this. And it just hasn't happened, and I think it's allowing the Cardinals to kind of look at themselves and go, yeah, you know, do we need another arm? Eh, maybe not. We can win the Central, and we know that's what they're looking at. So here's at. The where I will disagree with you a bit. I don't think that was going to change. I don't think it mattered what anybody did around them in the Central Division because we've seen this in the past. The Cubs had that great little run from like 2015 to 2018-ish. Guess what the Cardinals did? Operated as the Cardinals do. Nothing changed. They just went out there and they did what they do. And, you know, they won 90 games every season. They didn't do anything of really meaning in the postseason, but it didn't change anything because to the Cardinals are. That's how they operate. I think we can officially say, by the way, guys, this is something that I do think we could take away from the offseason. Man, if there's a player out there, specifically a pitcher, that's going to get five or more years on a big time contract. Just assume the Cardinals aren't signing him. We don't have to talk about him anymore. If they weren't in that market now, it's just never going to happen. They signed Sonny Gray because he was a three-year contract. That's why Sonny Gray is a Cardinal. If they were willing to go five-plus years, they probably would have gone to the top end of the market. They would have been more interested in some of those other guys, but they're not. They're not going to. They haven't. They won't. I think that we can go ahead and write that to the side. But specifically as it pertains to other teams doing something meaningful this offseason, if you're a Cardinals fan, in my opinion at least, I think you should be thrilled that other teams in this division aren't doing anything because it makes it more likely that you can win the division. Because I don't think that the offseason was going to change. Whether you saw the Cubs go out there and get Shohei Otani and Yamamoto, Andy Managa, and Chapman, and Cody Bellinger, like they could have done all of those things that I just said, 
the Cardinals would be doing the exact same thing because I don't think it changes a damn thing for them. See, I, I, I think it changes a little bit for them, especially if two teams get aggressive. Because I don't know if they could, because if the Reds were going to make a big move, say they sign Blake Snell and then the Cubs do what you just said, get Otani and, I don't know, add some other piece that's a seismic shift in the Central Division. If you're the third best team in the NL Central, you may not be a playoff team. And that is the goal. So I think it would have pushed them a little bit. And I would push back a little bit on them not signing the five-year deal. I think they would have done it for Nola. But Nola never was gonna never wanted to sign in St. Louis because he just wanted to remain in Philly. He's the one guy I think they would have done it. Why? Because he eats innings. And clearly that's what they loved this offseason. I, 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 I side with BK on this one. I think the Cubs yeah, and the Reds could have been super aggressive and nothing would have happened. Because I, I think... They would have done the same thing. They, uh, yeah. they did everything they wanted I to do at the beginning of the offseason before they knew anything about what the other teams were going to do. Mo operates... The same way Doug Armstrong does in terms of I don't give out no movement clauses or I don't give out uh, or I don't buy players out. Mo operates in the sense of well, we're not giving out five year contracts. We're not going over a certain amount of money for a type of player because that's not how I operate. I operate a certain way and this is how it's going to work. So and, and Mo has said it in the past. I've heard him multiple times throughout his tenure here say like, well, I'm, I'm not reactionary to teams in the division. We do what we expect us to win. The Cubs could have got Shohei Otani. The Reds could have gone out there and signed Sonny Gray. And I think Mo would have been like, well, let's go get our starting pitcher. Let's get Lynn and Gibson. And we're good to go. And I feel like that, and maybe clearly I'm off on this one apparently, but I, I think it would be a different story if you have two teams really push you. because. But there's it, never two teams in the division that push. But that's what I'm saying. Like That's why I think this has been such a... I don't, I don't know how you'd call it an underwhelming season by off season by the Reds and Cubs because I thought for sure the Cubs would be aggressive and I thought the Reds would at least make a move to where you go. Did you? Man, I thought the Reds would. I, I thought they were going to be in on the. I thought Blake they'd be aggressive. I, and I'm not saying they would make like multiple moves. I thought they would make that one big splash signing because you see a lot of teams do this where they build up with that young core and then they make that one signing. The, the Cubs the did it with Lester. Operate the same way, yeah. But the Cubs and the Reds are different but levels. I, I, of... We've seen the Reds spend money before, like on I, their own players. I thought they would do go out and get one guy to bring in here, like to lead this rotation to help pair with Hunter Green. Again, I didn't expect them to make like a ton of moves. I thought they'd make the one though to where it is. Wow, that team is now suddenly going to be favored in this division for five years to come. Yeah, I did on top not of the Cubs think being aggressive, they were going to go out there. Like, who's the guy that they could have gone out there and acquired? And I, I guess maybe they still could. I mean, I guess they could get like a Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, uh, Marcus Stroman. I mean, that's the top of the market now, starting pitching wise. But I didn't think they were going to be in on. Well, even if it's not that, like, I, they are would pair perfectly for a cease. They would have paired perfectly for like none of those guys have moved. I think that's the tough thing about evaluating any of this stuff at this point in the off season is man, very little's happened. Like you look at the athletics top 10 free agents. The only guys that have changed teams so far are Shohei Otani, Sonny Gray and Eduardo Rodriguez. You extend it beyond that. If you look at the top 20 free agents, the only other guys that have changed teams so far this year, are actually one that signed with the Reds and Candelario. Young who Lee's coming over from the KBO, Michael Walker and Seth Lugo, who both signed with the bleeping Royals. Like the offseason is just blah. And we knew this because there weren't a lot of legitimate top tier types of free agents that were available, but everything is so gummed up by Yamamoto and Otani and what their sweepstakes looked like that all of the other big market teams, they're stuck because they don't know. Okay. First it was Shohei Otani. Where's he going to go? Now it is. Okay. Yamamoto is now the big guy, the big fish that needs to be signed before any of these teams in New York or LA will make their next moves. And until that happens, I don't think we're going to see a lot of 
movement on the free agent free agency market. It stinks, man. I don't think this is good for baseball at all. That we're almost to Christmas and it's like two guys really that have signed at the top end of the market. All right, Chris Kerber, voice of the blues, coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Bring out the Zamboni! It's time for Curbside with the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber, brought to you by Scott Lee Heating Company, a proud Mitsubishi electric elite contractor. T-Bone on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by the voice of the blues. He's Chris Kerber joining us here on the show as he does each and every Wednesday. Kerbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. Tough one for the blues last night in Tampa Bay. Wanted to start out with the obvious, which was uh, the decision by Bannister to not play Pavel Buchnevich in the final 12 minutes of that game. Uh, what'd you make of that? What'd you think about Bannister's comments afterwards? Uh, it, it's an interesting strategy. Uh, Pavel probably, and, and I would assume he'd probably agree with this, it might have been his worst game as a St. Louis Blue. Um, and, you know, you just, especially even a top player, I mean, and I, and I consider Pavel to be kind of our best 200-foot all-around player just in terms of he can play every single scenario and his offensive ability too. So he just had a bad night, and he took three penalties. And on top of that, he's your top penalty killer, right? So... Uh, he, he had to make a decision, and, and and Bannister had an interesting, you know, was in an interesting spot here. He wants the game played a certain way, and he flat out was just blunt. He goes, "I can't have our players in the penalty box like that," and it sent the message to the entire team that look, even if you're going to do that to basically, you know, one of your absolute best players, you know that that should ring true to everybody. Now the key is, guys, in my opinion, is it's one thing to handle that that way. It's another thing to say what he said in the media. And I have full faith in this because of his experience as a player and as a coach. How you handle it one-on-one with him afterwards or the next day is really the important thing. Because let's face it, different players, because of their experience, their skill, their status, whatever, have different leashes. That's life, that's sports. And so how, you know, he lets them know, look, yeah, I had to make an example out of you. You're still my guy here. You know, we're, we're counting on you big time. And your response is going to send as much of a message to the rest of the team is me sitting here for the 12 minutes. And, you know, honestly, it's, that is the only form of accountability in terms of a team game that coaches really have. And, and make no mistake about it. Other players notice it. Other players notice when a guy is making mistakes, especially if it's a younger guy and they just keep getting rolled out there. So but we'll see the response to it, but, uh, you know, it was something that was probably earned and, and unfortunate at the same time. Well, in speaking of response curves, uh, I talked about it on post game. It's the 16th time this season that the Blues have given up two or more goals in a three or less minute span. Uh, what's the response to something like that? Like, why are we seeing that snowball happen this season? You know what? The uh, uh, it's, Craig Ruby and I talked about mental toughness at the beginning of the year, and I think that's part of it. Um, you know, you. you You've got some inexperience on this team. And even though you have some, let's say, experienced players, I don't know that you've got experienced players in winning hockey. You know, you've, you've got a lot of guys with experience that haven't played great winning hockey that are kind of splattered throughout your lineup. So and on a consistent basis in my book. And that's, that's a learning curve, even, even for veteran players. Alex, it's, it's a fantastic question because the Tampa Bay Lightning have dealt with that too. And 
had a conversation with John Cooper about that yesterday, and they said we just we've got to find a way to get back on the horse and stop the tide right then and there. And I really do think it's just it's a mental attitude and a confidence uh, aspect moving forward. It's it's who you know. Don't look around. You know, don't look to the guy next to you and say, "Are you going to do it?" You've got to look at yourself and say, "I'll be the guy." And there just needs to be more of that, I think, top to bottom. But yeah, clearly things snowballing quickly out of control has been quite an issue for this team all season long. And to put them in holes, it's hard enough to come from behind, period. But coming from behind by two or three on a regular basis, it just, it just, it's too hard. It's, it cannot be your DNA to have to do that, and that's not winning hockey. Curbs, I guess what I'm confused by, though, like you, you mentioned how you've got a lot of guys that haven't really played necessarily winning hockey. A lot of these guys were here a couple of seasons ago, and I guess maybe your answer, and you can tell me if this is the case, it was in different roles, but a lot of these guys were here and big pieces of that Blues team that went up against Colorado in the postseason, and I still believe they would have beat Colorado if not for Jordan Bennington getting hurt in net. So why does it seem so difficult for them to be able to just transition the game that we have seen them play in the past once again in 2022 and 2023? Well, you know, honestly, I think, I think a big difference, the bottom six is different. You know, uh, well, one, if, even if you go back a couple of years ago, when you're talking about that Colorado series, you're still talking about a ton of ice time going to, you know, Vladimir Tarasenko and Ivan Barbashev, a David Perron, and a Ryan O'Reilly. Right, so when Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo, uh, you know, were in those situations, they weren't going up against the top of the top every single shift, and now they are, and it's different. And I think Robert Thomas is having a really good year, you know. And and frankly, I think Jordan Cairo is having a solid year, just not offensively. But we are seeing some good parts of his game more often now. More often, you hope translates into more consistent, you know, as as time passes on. And that's, that's the patience and the learning curve that you need. But there's a big difference, even for some of those guys that were around and in those moments that are now in spots and, and playing against matchups that truthfully, that they haven't played regularly on night in night out. So when I talk about experience against that, I think that might be more what I'm referring to here, BK, because while you have some of the same guys, their scenarios and their quality of ice time and the ice time that they're seeing is really quite different from even just a couple of years ago. Curbs, I thought you and Joe had had a phenomenal breakdown last night on post game, and Joe talked about you know if this continues, if this trend goes the the same direction moving forward, that there 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 will be roster moves for this team. I don't think it was a coincidence that Doug Armstrong and his staff were there last night watching this team on this road trip. Do you foresee roster moves if this team continues to struggle, and what would those be? Well, I, let's go maybe a little bit deeper. First off. I think the future of the franchise in terms of some young guys is the progression of Dean and Bolduc down in Springfield, right? They're playing pretty well. I talked with Doug Armstrong. He's liking the progress that they're having down there. I get the sense that you want to keep those guys down there as long as you can. This isn't a matter of, well, just bring them up and see what they can do. No, if they're, if they're finding success, if they're learning the pro game, if they're learning just, heck, what it's like on how to kill some time, you know, between a practice and a game the next day, that's all part of the process, and you can make mistakes in the American Hockey League and grow and get away with them that you cannot make in the NHL or they end up in the back of the net, and it can be crushing from a development standpoint. So let's say we park those two guys in the minors for the season. You're looking at call-ups of a guy like a Walker, a, a Goddett. You know, um, obviously we just saw McGinn go back down. You got McEachern up here, right? So you've got some of those guys. 
I think roster moves only happen if somebody wants one of our guys and Doug Armstrong feels that he's advancing the development process of this team over the next couple of years because we, we have to remember, and I, I did a long interview with Tom Stillman this morning that we're going to have for the broadcast tomorrow, Alex, and, you know, there's, there's, there's the urgency to win that Tom fully recognizes. That's the business. And then there's also the patience that's needed through this transition process. And, you know, I, I think right now, guys, I think what you want to see is you're not so much frustrated with a 6-1 loss, with it just being a loss. You're frustrated with how that loss happened. Yep. When I talked to some veteran players yesterday, I sensed some real frustration after that game from guys. I mean, you look, you had, you had Nick Letty that gets run into by Tanner Janot, okay, which is what you'd expect after Toropchenko. I forgot the player that Toropchenko hit. And when he hit him, the forwards on the ice were your fourth line, a fourth line of Toropchenko, McEachern, and McGing. All guys that are still trying to prove themselves in the NHL. Now, nobody's saying those guys have to go fight Tanner Janot. And that, that guy's had 50 fights in the last, what, five years, right? But you can create a scrum and you can get in the face. You can have some jam and you can have some attitude, you know. And, and even afterwards, when Asamon, you know, bumps into Saad in between the benches after running into Kapanen and then runs into Kapanen again and Kapanen and had enough of it at that point in time, right? Uh, you know, everybody went over there. But at one point, the linesman has got a hold of Tyler Tucker wrapped up so tight, he's just taking constant punches from the Tampa Bay player. And, and no one really fought to get in there on that other Tampa Bay player. And so, to me, I, I think there has to be a recognition by the younger players and an acceptance of what are you going to do to stay in the NHL? What are you going to do to make a difference? You know, what are you going to do to have the backs of your teammates you know, and, you know, it can't be Braden Shen throwing a couple hits in the second period, Tanner Janot challenging them, and Braden Shen going, geez, not every time. And, and you know, there's got to be other guys. There were opportunities, you know, for some of those younger guys that are still trying to find an everyday shift in the National Hockey League. And I don't think they're taking full advantage of it, to be honest with you. And to me, it's, it's less about the wins, and it is about how you're playing and coming together as a team. You lose that game. 5-3 with an empty netter, right? But it was a hard-fought battle. You feel totally different than you do after the way that game went last night. So, Curves, this will be the final thing. We've just got about another minute here or so uh, on, on, on with you. But Hugh McGing was sent down today, and I, I thought he played really well last night. I, I thought he did a pretty decent job. It's not going to show up in the score sheet or anything, but I think the coach agreed with my assessment, given the fact that he was rewarded in that third period as Buchnevich was benched by getting some opportunities on the power play, and you don't do that if you, you think that he played poorly. Why do you think it was that he was the guy that was sent down today in that roster move? Yeah, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I'd over read too much into that one, BK, just because there's still the business side of it, of asset protection, of cap management. And with the roster freeze coming where you can't move anybody or do anything for the next three or four days, right? I, I think that, that, that was just the guy that, that, that they chose there. I, I think they want McEachern's size for tomorrow night. You couldn't, you couldn't play a guy tomorrow night and then send him down, right? So I think they wanted McEachern's size against the Florida Panthers there, and that's kind of, I think, where it left McGing. So I think Hugh came in, did a really good job in the five games that he did. He played hard. He knows he's a call-up the next time it comes in, but this, uh, to me, was simply just roster management and size management based on your opponent coming up. Interesting. I I just would have kept him up. I, I mean, you've got, you know, in the next 10 days, you've got four four games or so. I um, I, I don't yeah, know. But, it, you know what, but here's, here's the thing real quick with that. Like, I hear what you're saying, 
And, I, and, and now, if somebody gets hurt, they can call him back up, right? Sure. But right now, every day that you don't have him on the roster, it is a few dollars that you're saving from a cap standpoint, which is important. And then, uh, and the other thing is, you do still have Sammy Boy, and you're going to have to get Sammy Boy in there, right? And get him and get him going again. So since they knew that they were going to scratch a guy, this this was a, a good roster kind of the business of hockey type move more than anything. It was not a reflection on McGing as it is just a reflection of where the team's at in terms of what they need to do from a roster management standpoint. Fair enough. Hey, Curbs, appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy yourself down there in South Beach. Enjoy the game tomorrow night against the Florida Panthers and Matthew Kachuk in person. I'll talk with you again next week, my man. All right, guys. Have an awesome weekend. Merry Christmas, everybody. Chris Kerber, voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. I I guess my big thing here, Alex, and um, I I get what he's saying there. I just disagree with it. I I think that if you've got a guy that's young that shows you what you're looking for from him, you keep him in the NHL as a reward. The money that you're saving over the next week or two is nothing. I mean, it's so unbelievably marginal. It's it's not going to show up anything the Blues can or cannot do based on Hugh McGing's, what, $700,000 salary and the – three eighty seconds of it that you're saving over the next week or so. I, I that seems pretty crazy to me. But the reason why I would also push back is because like you're playing against Dallas two games from now. He just played against them. So you were okay with him being in their lineup against them previously. I would assume that you're gonna be so again in the next couple of or in the next week or so. Uh, before that you play against Chicago. That's not an overly significantly physical team. So yeah, maybe he sits against Florida, but the next three or four games, Chicago, Dallas, Colorado, Pittsburgh Vancouver, th- those aren't massive teams that you're going up against that are overly physical. So I, I just disagree with that. I'm sure part of it, too, it if, if you were to ask Doug Armstrong, is they saw what they needed to see from a human gang, and they said, okay, what's the most you could get from them? Fourth line, fine. Let's see what some of these other guys got. Maybe they got to make other decisions in terms of what they're doing moving forward with, you know, if Sammy Blaze gets into the lineup, uh, Nikita Alexandrov is another one. I, I also wonder if this was just part of it, like, okay, we know what Hugh McGing is. He did great for us. Let's see what some of these other guys can provide. Yeah, I, I hear it, and I would be fine with that. I would not send him down after that game. He just played a game that was rewarded by putting him on the power play, and his reward is to go down to the AHL. I I would just keep him around. I, I think he's earned that right, but it, obviously the Blues disagree with that. Hey, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. This is also your opportunity to go to the 101ESPN.com merch store because we've partnered with the STL Shirt Company to offer a special 101 ESPN online merch store this month. It includes t-shirts, hoodies, hats, so much more. You got all your favorites over there, the jerseys, the dunk shirts so much more all at 101espn.com that is available for you up until the end of the year december 31st it is powered by mcbride homes for alex ferrario and tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley thank you all so much for tuning in today we will be back tomorrow at 11 a.m the fast lane is coming up next you're on 101 espn you've been listening to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn